Welcome to Creation Conversations with Joe Hubbard and John Mackay. Join us each week as we answer your questions and common objections to the Bible, creation, and Noah's flood. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are joining us from around the globe. Welcome back to Creation Conversations, where this week we have got a Christmas special, hence the festive hat and hence Sam's festive chair as well. Um, John and Diane clearly aren't in that much of a festive spirit at the moment. but We're Australians. (laughs) (laughs) exactly well i will have to warn you i'm not keeping this hat on for very long because it's quite warm in here with the fire going and i am liable to overheat so i shall be replacing this hat with my normal hat uh, at some point so uh, enjoy the festivity while you can but uh, how are we all doing today how's how's life around uh, uh, i mean how's how's life going where you are sam oh it's going really well yeah i started a new job on monday Uh, it's going fantastically well um but yeah it's, it's life's going good at the minute yeah great stuff great stuff what's it like down in canberra well it's bright and sunny here we have to remember it's uh, it's the middle of summer I know, here or I know. the or the beginning of summer rather um the solstice is a couple of days away but uh so it's finally warmed up we have bright blue sky and uh <clears throat> yes so it's it's good it's a nice down there. Now, John, I understand in Australia, in, in where you are anyway, there's been a few a few political issues. Do you want to update us on that? Well, I better tell you, since you don't want to talk about weather this time, which is great because we Australians don't talk much about weather, <laughs> it was really hot without the fire on yesterday as we, we dragged a big trailer of petrified fossils and wood and all that sort of stuff and the tire blew and we had to change it in the hot sun so there's the weather update as much as you're going to get from me today (laughs) and the politics that's even hotter so we've had one group in victoria um, taking the premier there to court who conveniently absented himself from everything so he couldn't be found so the judge threw the case out i mean the group was suing him for treason all over this covid vaccine stuff he's the most atheist Prime Minister, Premier, we've got. And so all of that has sort of backfired because they couldn't serve the notice on him. So the judge threw it out. Procedures have got a benefit and sometimes they're very frustrating. Up here, we've got a a little niggle in our whole network because on Monday, our government threw open the borders, but only the double vaxxed were allowed in. Now, it's interesting because you see, whether you're for it or against it, there's a Bible verse that says, test everything and only keep the things that are true. The unvaxxed were not allowed to cross the border. The double vaxxed were, and on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, the number of COVID cases has gone up, up, and up. So if you're looking for proof that the vaxxed people can share the disease and get other people infected, you've got it. Because no unvaxxed were allowed in. We had no COVID cases until the double vaxxed were allowed in. So that's our political comment, and we're not talking any more about that today. We've got some exciting things about Christmas, a much better oh, th- yes. topic to actually discuss. Well, just to throw it out there for people, we did a three-part series on sort of politics and when should a Christian obey or disobey um, the government. So go back and watch Creation Conversations. That was a few uh, a few weeks back, right? Um, but if you want to get up to date, not only about, uh, you know, creation and about the evidence and about some news about creation research, you remember last week, me and Diane went through the, uh, 
evidence news for this sort of time round. Well, a new one has gone out since we discussed about it last week. So go and make sure you sign up to the evidence news because we did have a what is a Christian view of politics and things like that. You know, it's not just science. It's not just creation. It's really all about Jesus. It's all about the Bible. And it's how our view of the world, no matter what is going on, actually should align up with scripture. So make sure you go and get yourself signed on to um, uh, the evidence news. It's called just go to any one of our websites and you'll find links on there and uh, go back and watch creation conversations when we did our politics and discussion and stuff on there also we're going to be bringing part four at some point because you see all of this is based on a sermon which john wrote and i uh, helped him and diane helped him with a few little bits as well especially the history right so we're bringing up part four uh, in the new year now this will be uh, so keep an eye out for that as well so um it's all uh, it's all good we're all happy i'm getting far too hot on this so i'm taking that off and putting that on um so there we go never mind um let's uh let's move on to um our first sort of discussion because we're going to be doing stuff about christmas right and i've got my bible here and uh also with my bible i've actually got our brand new uh kids book the star boy uh, which we're going to be talking about later and actually we're going to be talking quite a bit about stars uh, today in this broadcast this special broadcast john will be mostly dealing with that but before we get into the ministry updates before we get into the star discussions before we get into all of that i thought it'd be important to start with scripture um seeing as this is going to be more of a scriptural discussion today now I've sat through uh, many different Christmas sermons over the years, and I have yet to find one that actually started with the scripture verse that we're going to be starting with today. I'm actually reading from Numbers uh, chapter 24. It's a, a, around a very famous portion of scripture because, of course, we're going to be reading about Balaam. Uh, Balaam was this sort of Gentile prophet, right, who uh, did some good stuff but got mixed up with some really bad stuff as well. He's most known for being associated with a talking donkey, right? Go and uh, check out check out the, uh, the story there. Um, but here's a little section which people often miss. We're reading from Numbers chapter 24, and we're reading from verse 15. 15. It says, the utterance of Balaam, the son of Baor, and the utterance of the man whose eyes are opened, the utterance of him who hears the word of God and has the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and batter the brow of Moab, and destroy all the sons of tumult. Um, you know, just that little uh, key phrase there, a star shall come, come out of Jacob. This is referring to Jesus Christ. It's a prophecy about Jesus Christ. Now, John's going to talk more about stars later, but let's go back to the first ever prophecy of Jesus Christ. We're actually reading from Genesis chapter 3 here. Oh, you know the story. Um, the serpent, Satan, disguised as a serpent, came and tricked Eve. Eve was deceived into eating the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam willfully chose to eat of it. And as a result, God cursed both the serpent, he cursed the woman, and he cursed the man. And hence all of the planet as a result of that. But listen to what he said to the serpent. It says, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And then here's the prophecy. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. A prophecy that was fulfilled with the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, we've spoken a bit about the star prophecy. John's going to speak more about that. Here we're talking about the prophecy of a seed, the line of Jesus Christ through the line of David. I'm going to be covering that in a little bit as well. And we've got one more little uh, um Bible verse to give you, which has also got connections to the star and the study of the stars, right? It's another prophecy. It's one that, again, is almost never used in a Christmas sense, but it has everything to do with the Christmas time celebrations. Uh, Psalm 72. Psalm 72, verse 10. It, again, it's talking about a prophecy of Jesus Christ, and it says, The kings of Tarshish and of the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. I wonder what that little Bible verse has got to do with Christmas. Well, we're going to talk about this more as we get in, talk about some prophecy, have a look at where the Starboy connection is, because you realize John did a lot of research for this Starboy stuff. So we're going to plow through some of this today, and uh, hopefully it will be very enjoyable for you as well. But John, can you uh, can you take us away with um, a little bit of a, a ministry update and some of the exciting things that you have had to uh, bring back with you on the back of a broken trailer uh, in, the last, in the last little while? Yes, yes. We had some young men with us, so we sent them foraging for Kentucky Fried Chicken or McDonald's, anything they could find uh, to take up the time. We were in that uh, just on the edge of a town, fortunately, praise the Lord. But uh, yes, I bought some things in to show you and uh, I was out at a famous field, get this sign up there. You can see this is a beautiful piece of petrified wood. Now, this comes from one of the Western exposures of what we know at Jurassic Ark. We find fossil trees, and of course, trees are more associated with Easter. And Easter, of course, was celebrated by the Christians right from the very start. Christmas didn't even get a mention till the third or the fourth century. But trees, fossil trees, petrified wood, we were out there yesterday. I've been out there before. We were collecting from a pile of previously collected stuff and bringing it back. So what have we got that's interesting and very heavy? Can you see this conglomerate? Now, the names of rocks uh, are, are pretty practical. Conglomerate just means with and stuck together. You know, it used to be called plum pudding stone because it's like the old-fashioned uh, English plum puddings. But what's interesting about this one is when you put it on the saw and you cut a slice, look at that. Can you see the bits that are actually in it? That's water I've just put on to make it shine up a bit. They're actually pieces of petrified wood. They're broken and smashed up. So something has happened to this field where the trees that were already turned to stone were all smashed into one another and bits and pieces of them rolled further down and then re-glued together. Um, they couldn't rot too well in a new conglomerate, but this has been a catastrophic field. It's uh, the, a Western extension of Jurassic Ark. So a very profitable day, even though we spent ages sort of hanging around <laughs> waiting for tires and things like that. And what we did was while we were there, I came back uh, and was really rejoicing in the fact that this had arrived. Now, it looks very pretty. It's polished. Um, the other side is not so pretty. It's just had the iron staining cleaned off it. But you open this up 
and it's one of the most unusual fossils we've ever found. Yes, it looks like wood, but you may remember we published a picture in our newsletter of a giant, it looks like a seed pod. It's pointed at both ends. We'd never seen anything like it. We've never found anybody else who's found anything like it. We had it cut. We had it polished because we wanted to know what's it like inside. I mean, test everything, only keep the things that are true. Is it really a seed pod? Because if so, it's the first fossil one that's ever been found. And yes, there are trees with gigantic seed pods. Um, is that what it is? Well, the good news is, and to hold this up once again, it certainly has segments inside. It's not just the ordinary squash tree with flattened tree rings. Uh, the tree rings go around certain centers, or at least the rings that are in there seem to hold sections that could hold seed pods. And more research got to be done, but that's what creation research is all about. And if it does turn out to be a seed pod, we are the first place on the planet to actually find a fossilized one. So that's good news, Joseph. Uh, digging Absolutely. up the rocks, and uh, they do cry out the praises of God, who's not only the creator, who's the judge as well. And of course, in between, we have Jesus, who we're just about to talk about at Christmas. Amen. Yeah, no, some great finds, some great stuff there, John. Uh, and really, all of this is, you know, all of this is enabled by your support. You know, if people like you who's watching us today don't support us, we simply wouldn't be able to do this kind of work and this research. So thank you all very much for your support, particularly in your prayers. But there is actually now a new way to support us, and yes, we've been able to sort it out um, this uh, this uh, this 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 week. Uh, we've been able to uh, enable monetization on YouTube, so you can now send things like super chats, and you can now send things like uh, uh, super stickers and stuff like that. Sam, you know way more about this than me. Do you want to comment on how people do that? Yeah, sure. So if you're on YouTube, uh, if you look at the bottom of the chat, you should see a little sort of a money symbol or a dollar or whatever. I can't remember exactly what it is. Uh, you click on there, it gives you the option to either send a donation or like this form of like a super chat, which is like a special message. And basically, we'll stick it on screen um, just as sort of as a way to say thank you. Um, and you can also send fun little stickers as well. Uh, they vary in different prices according to what it says some of them are a bit more basic and others are a bit more complicated and the more complicated ones that cost more but all of it feeds back to us and it's a great way to support us if you uh are so inclined to do so you just no obligation to donate of course this content is free but if you say oh there we go already we've already got a donation from jerome got a good thumbs oh, up wonderful. There. there you go thank, thank you, you so much, much jerome Sorry. There we go. That's great. Of course, this is only available for those of you watching on um, YouTube. We put this yes. out to Facebook and to YouTube. So uh, if you want to support us on Facebook, you can still donate to us um, through our website, creationresearch.net, and click, click on Donate or the uh, UK web store. Or you can come over and watch us on YouTube and do it that way. It's entirely up to you. But um, thank you all very much, everybody. And, uh, yeah, looks good. Great stuff. All right, John, Christmas. What's Christmas like for, for, for you in the, in the, in the Mackay household? Well, the first lesson I learned was in my parents' household when I was a little boy and I was very disillusioned. You know, you left the carrot out for Santa's reindeers. Uh -huh. You left a bit of chocolate out for Santa himself. Not that he needed any more chocolate. I mean, he was a fat guy. Uh, but that's what you did. And, of course, as you grow up three years, four years, seven years, you begin to question this because all your friends are saying, oh, he's just made up. Now, my parents never lied to me. 
But then I discovered that they actually did. And I was very disillusioned. On top of that, I lost my faith in the Easter Bunny. It wasn't about a bunny at all. And I'll be honest, at that point, I became skeptical of adults telling the truth. Now, you can take whatever lesson you want from that. That's just the way it personally affected me. I began to distrust what adults said. Of course, I guess in the long run, that's led up to discussing is evolution true or not? Because in the end, I lost faith in the scientists who promote everything getting here by chance when they're using their brains to intelligently try and come up with answers. Something was wrong somewhere. Someone was lying. And it was not only Charles Lael, it was Charles Darwin, etc. But in our modern Mackay household, of course, the sad thing is all my kids have grown up. Now I've got grandkids. And of course, they're repeating the whole cycle. But what we do is we actually tell them about Jesus at Christmas. So we actually not only have presents, uh, of course, that's the part the kids really like, but they know it's from grandpa, or they know it's from grandma, or they know it's from auntie, uh, whatever, right? And they love the present bit, but we make sure they only get that after they're reminded of God's greatest present, who is Jesus Christ. Great stuff. So uh, it's interesting how you've had this sort of... Um, you know the 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 lies, I suppose you could call it, as put it bluntly, that that started off at Christmas time, ended up making you want to investigate kind of the uh, the 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 work that you're now doing here in the future. So that's it's uh, it's interesting how God can actually guide and lead stuff as you, as you go. But I mean, you've just finished. Uh, in fact, it's it's now published. It's available. If you want it guaranteed by Christmas, you need to order it in the UK anyway uh, by tomorrow. Although they usually uh, give you one or two days grace but get your orders in now and you can see the links i'm sure sam will be able to put them up the star boy all right you've just finished this book it's published it's available now stars feature quite heavily um and you did a lot of research into this book i understand what kind of background research did you do for the book and uh, how does that tie into some of the little things that you you wrote in like for instance one of the things that i love right is this family that you features throughout the book has a dog right a pet dog now that's really unusual in the world of sort of uh, the, the the jewish families and the jewish households in fact you kind of get this um because and i think it's in philippians the apostle paul uh, says beware of dogs right dogs will often look down on in terms of these animals so just even little snippets like that why did this family have a dog what's the history all this kind of stuff you know the 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 history and the research really really threads through um your book here but in particular the star where's the star connection in all this well uh two things to answer there one is the most exciting response we had from a pastor who i sent to review the book because it's not just me who writes the book we send them out to 20 or 30 people of different expertises to check them out and um, okay this pastor responded and said wow he said i didn't know half of this background research i looked up some it's obviously true what you need is a commentary on this kid's book yeah. and i thought <laughs> I don't think there's any any other kid's book in the world that's been asked to have a commentary, but it has got such hidden meaning in there and such real facts of history. You're quite right. In the New Testament, there's the, the lady who's not a Jewish person and she's talking to Jesus and she wants a reply, right? And Jesus answered her with a reference to dogs. And she actually, re sorry, she responds with a reference to dogs 
actually eating the crumbs under the table. So the Jews didn't have nice big juicy tins of dog food with the greatest flavors on the planet. The dogs survived by eating in the street if they were there at all, because to the Jewish people, their mindset was dogs are unclean. But in our book, we feature this family and they're the only family living just outside of Nazareth and they've got a dog. Now, question, let's go back. They're Jews, no dogs, bad attitude to dogs. Well, at least my dog would say they had a bad attitude to them. <laughs> the Gentiles had dogs. The Roman soldiers in the town had dogs. The Roman soldiers actually enjoyed dog for breakfast. You know, the, the standard hot dog is a real fact of history. And the Jews wouldn't touch it because it was considered <laughs> unclean. Okay, so what you've got is a Jewish family and they've got a dog. And the kids struggle. How come, Dad, we're the only family in, 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 in this town who is Jewish and we've got a dog? And so Dad explains it by going back to actually Exodus and Abraham. Now, Abraham wasn't a Jew. You've got to get that straight. You heard me correctly. Abraham wasn't a Jew. Adam wasn't a Jew. Noah wasn't a Jew. There were no Jews until after Judah came onto the planet. But what you'll find is the Jewish people have traditionally negative to dog. But Abraham, he had lots of sheep. And when he came, he actually had to have a sheep dog. Perhaps he had sheep dogs before, but they discovered the Canaan dogs, the wild dogs that roamed Israel, uh, what would become Israel, were actually excellent for rounding things up. Almost like the Indian pariah dog, but they were very good at being with people hanging around the edges, and they were also good at rounding them up. In fact, I came across this by looking up dogs. And then the history of dogs, because there was an article appeared in a research journal on rediscovering Israeli dogs. And they ended up going all the way to Canada to get a batch of the Israeli sheep, right? There were special Israeli sheep and they bought one back, well, sorry, two back to Israel and they bred a whole flock. And that was interesting. But then they got the dogs and the dogs were the ones that Abraham would have had. Okay, now Abraham had dogs, no problem at all. Moses says the dog's unclean, now it's a problem to the people. But the uncle in the story says when God told the animals in Egypt to let us go, yeah, you heard me right, he actually ordered the dogs to not bark and to be silent. It read, it, read the record, read everything that's in there. And because the father said the dogs were good to us, my family's been good to dogs ever since. Interesting thought, isn't it? But yeah. you'll find there's so much more history in the Bible that people just don't even look up. Uh, hence that New Testament scripture, test everything. Even oh, yes. what people say about the Bible, even what they say about Christmas. Uh, remember I said Christmas wasn't celebrated till the third or fourth century. Easter, way more important. Uh, we're dealing with the present version understanding of Christmas, which is Joseph's red hat. Thank you for taking it off, Joseph. Uh, uh, we can get back to the real you and yeah. people in money because you look better. That's oh, the, good. That's thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, talking of stars and stuff, let's move into stars a bit now because that's a fascinating. And by the way, everybody, um, go and check out last year, you know, still in lockdown, we in the UK anyway, we were announced a couple of days before Christmas that we could no longer get together with families and all this kind of stuff. So we kind of planned ahead anyway, and we did a Christ the Creating King of Christmas conference. So go and check that out. There's sort of about six or seven hours worth of content there, right? So fascinating stuff. But I can actually see some of the presentations and the research that you did there, John, 
coming out in this in this Starboy book here. I just want to hold this page up to the camera here. You can see uh, there's uh, there's uh, it's Zach and his. Uh, uh, there we go. They're they're there looking at the stars, right? And you can see that they're talking about the stars, and they're saying that one is called the Fool. Now. She then asks, why do they call it the Fool? And John, you go on to explain why it's called the Fool. And it's got an interesting Jewish um, uh, myth, if you like, or Jewish story about Nimrod, of course, associated with the Tower of Babel. But what would, I mean, can people actually take this and relate it to what we see today? What would we be calling the the Fool today in the the sky? Okay, now, the first I came across this, and uh, I like kids' movies, right? Not only because they're unlikely to have too much pornography in them. Notice I said too much. Now they're increasingly getting stuff in there. But you'll find that there was one that was excellent. It was called The Prince of Egypt. It was the most accurate kids' story I've seen <clears throat> dealing with Moses and the Exodus. And uh, what you'll find is the constellation that you and I call Orion, right? Taurus. The hunter, yes. Yeah, the hunter, right? And then there's um, the giant, right? Sometimes you'll find there's uh, the one he's called the giant up there. And the whole story the Jews had, they had different names for these constellations. One of the ones you find mentioned in the Bible is Orion, right? The constellation of the Pleiades is in there. And they, their version, even in the, the, the Prince of Egypt movie, when you point out the, the giant there or the Orion, they called it the fool and it rises just as, not, not even uh, name per se, but it rises just as Pharaoh is making the most foolish decision he could ever make. And his firstborn son is going to die. And I thought, isn't that brilliant background history? So it was worth including in ours as well. Yeah. And there's one other one which is really interesting that I came across and I sent it away to a physics guy to get checked. You see, my background's in hitting rocks. My wife constantly complains. Why are you always looking down? The answer is that's got a rock star, right? And I never trip over as a result, by the way. And other people do if they're looking up or looking ahead. But I'm looking down and the rocks will, you know, they cry out from the ground to me, pick me up, pick me up. Uh, and they, they actually get to be like that. But when you look at the Jewish history, when you look at the constellations, when you look at the scriptures and try to put all of this together, There is one constellation which showed up in this history. I read it in an ancient Roman book, right? It's recorded in the ancient Romans uh, as to what stars they could see as well. I did not even know that our most famous constellation, the Southern Cross, can be seen from Jerusalem at certain times of the year. I thought, that's not possible. So I got an astronomy book out and they assured me it could be seen. Uh, in from Israel at certainly times of the year, certainly from Jerusalem and certainly from Bethlehem. I thought, wow, how do I check this out? Remember my first lesson in truth-telling was, hey, my parents didn't tell me the truth about Santa Claus. Uh, They lied to me about the Easter Bunny. Astronomers are lying to you about the Big Bang. How do I know this statement in a a textbook, uh, an astronomy book, in a history book is actually true? Now, one of the guys I know has a passionate interest as a physics guy in astronomy. So I said, can you check this out? And he said, the Southern Cross seen from Israel, that's not possible. I said, that's what I thought too. But the history books say it was. And so he ran it through. You know, they've got computer programs that wind the stars backwards, the constellations. There's a couple of assumptions in there, but 
pretty, pretty reliable ones. And he came back and he said, wow. He said, do you know that on the 25th of December in 4 BC, the Southern Cross shone directly over Nazareth? I went, I'm sorry, directly over Bethlehem. And I thought, that's mind boggling. It's worth putting in the book. Uh, because there is so much discussion about the 25th of December. But there's an interesting, not not quite throwaway fact, but an interesting fact of history to the best of our confirmation. So that's what all of that stuff is in the background of Starboy. And you'll learn ever so much, not just about the Bible story, because this is about um, the Bible story from the perspective of people who are just on the edge of it. The family lives in Nazareth. Mary and Joseph are on the way to Bethlehem. What do we know that the ancient astronomers said about the stars in Bethlehem? All of those things, and it's from the perspective of people just on the edge of the story. And it's turned out, well, you've enjoyed it, haven't you, Joseph? I've enjoyed it very much. Yeah, it's a, it's a great book to look at. And I, like I say, I love these little sort of uh, little sneaky references that come in because while they may not be, you know, they're partially explained because, of course, the, the little boy asks, um, you know, the, the uncle or whatever, and there's an explanation and whatnot. But it's not fully explained. It doesn't give you like, you know, it's not written as like an essay, right? It's a kid's book. So it gives you enough something to go away and do your research before. So interesting you mentioned the commentary, John. I think it would be uh, interesting to do a kind of a, a kind of a commentary and stuff like that. But I do like how, you know, Starboy, it's the Starboy. It's this boy who's fascinated by stars. And stars feature very, very heavily throughout this, the Bible, particularly around what, you know, the time of Jesus' birth and so on and so forth. And in fact, Jesus himself is even referred to as a star in uh, the Bible verse that we read earlier from Numbers uh, 24, verse 17, a star shall come out of Jacob. Can you talk a little bit more about the sort of the, the star reference? Why is it referred to as a star? What's going on with the star that the uh, that, that was, uh, you know, talked about when the Magi came? And how does that all kind of tie in with this prophecy mm-hmm. and this time at, at Christmas? Okay, I've flicked up uh, a psalm on my phone here. It's in the good old King James. So let me read from Psalm 8. The first time I heard this psalm, Uh, It was actually sung and it was a beautiful, I I mean, I'm a bit of a musician myself from way back and I love the music of this. Um, But even if you just read it, it's about stars. Listen carefully. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth who has set thy glory above the heavens. Now, the first time I drove out west here in Australia, I mean, I live on the edge of a big city called Brisbane and we don't have too much smog or anything around here. And to me, I picked out the Southern Cross. I was pretty good at being a bushman and not getting lost. But you see, out in the bush where there's no smoke at all, the first time I drove out west, I got about 300 miles from the big cities and the stars were just glorious. And the psalmist says, your glory is even greater than the twinkling stars that I mean, they were mind-boggling. You could see the meteorites flashing across the sky. You could see that you could just about see everything that you can see south of Jerusalem. Yeah, I didn't know about the Jerusalem bit then. But that sky folds around and you can see the stars ever so beautifully up in the sky. And the psalmist writes, your glory is above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, thou hast ordained strength because of thine enemies. What? The little kids can see it straight away. 
the astronomers start to talk about chance and millions of years of Big Bang making this. I was reminded of this, this passage because I was walking along through a national park and dad and his son were down standing on the edge of this beautiful blue Australian ocean. You want to come out, well, whenever you're allowed to, come out and be a tourist and look at the beauty of our coastline. And the little boy said, hey, dad, where did the ocean come from? And dad started on about billions of years ago, comets of ice melting and hundreds of thousands, millions, etc. And the little boy, it obviously went right over his head. And he said, and dad had obviously done one thing to benefit this kid. He'd sent him to Sunday school. And the little kid said, hey, dad, I think I know where it came from. You do, son? He said, yeah, it's all the water left over from Noah's flood. Spot on, kid. Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, uh, thou hast ordained strength that your enemies might be still. That little kid just put his dad in the sin bin uh, for being so stupid. Okay, Psalm 8, verse 3. King David, we're back to him. When I consider the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. Two words. Oh, you know how we like history here? And when we do politics, we actually talk. Well, we talk a lot about the Normans because much of modern English is a combination of their version of French tied with a little bit of Latin, mixed up with the Germanic languages, tied in with ancient Celtic. Um, and there's a word in there that you can blame the Normans exclusively for. And before then, the Romans would have recognized that as well. Now it's modern English. When I consider, C-O-N, Latin meaning with. Sitter, sitter, what does sitter mean? Oh, you know it as sidereal. You know, stars, a star time. And the book is all about a boy who had learned from little one up to adults. Uh, he was a teenager now, just a young teenager. And his job was to actually tell the farmers when to plant the seeds. And in those days, and right in the start of modern Australia, we used the farmer's almanac, which is a star calendar. And so this kid got used to knowing what stars were up there. And then he saw a new one. He considered oh, the meaning. Are you with the stars? Um, aren't words interesting? The Normans probably didn't even know it meant that because they borrowed it from the Romans. When I think about the stars, in fact, it goes on, when I look at the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, there's the side of it, which thou hast ordained. Now, Joseph's already read a couple of passages. Genesis chapter 1. Um, God made the sun, moon and the stars for signs, for times and seasons. And the most important sign has been the one the wise men followed from. Did they follow it? No, that's legend. They saw the star like the young boy in the story did. And then it disappears because he didn't see it for a couple of years after that. They followed the star. No, no, no. That's the story that's sold to us all the time. It's on the Christmas cards. They didn't follow the star. They saw a star sign and they went to Jerusalem to ask the priests. And you see, they probably knew about this prophecy from Balaam because the whole of the Jewish people, um, Daniel, etc., had been taken captive to Babylon. Daniel actually does a favor for the for the Magi, the wise men, and he actually rescues them from death. You remember the, the, the task the king gave? Uh, can you tell me what dream I had? 
tell us the dream, your majesty, and we'll be happy to give you an interpretation. I can't remember what it was, said the king. Well, nobody can do that. And that's how Daniel comes into the story. There's a wise young man who knows how to interpret the ways of the gods. And so they brought Daniel in. And when he gives the king the dream, um, he actually saves the Magi. Uh, why? Because the king had warned them if they couldn't tell him the story, they would be put to death. Read it in Daniel for yourself. And every one of the wise men the king employed was on death row. And Daniel said very graciously, oh, and please spare the Magi. So from that day on, that prophecy that was there in Balaam and its application via Daniel to the wise men meant that the wise men knew what this prophecy was, a star and then a scepter, a king out of Jacob, out of Israel. You see, Jacob is Israel's family tree. And so the wise men already had a few clues and they were in debt to Daniel. Uh, you call them the Magi. That's a short version of their really long name. You can look it up if you like. We use it once in the book, but we didn't want to confuse people. But you know that word. Just like consider, consider comes way back from the Romans. You'll even find sidereal uh, as a term in pre-languages, pre-Roman languages. And likewise with the Magi, you still use that word. I went out back yesterday, 300 miles or so, and we actually collected a trailer load of stuff and we used a magine to bring it back. Magi means power. Imagination, all of these words involve a power concept. So machine is the way we pronounce it, but magi is the root word meaning power. These men were men of power and knowledge is power. That's what they were good at. So therefore, they end up seeing this star sign. The boy sees the star sign. They know what it means. He spends the rest of the book trying to figure out what does it mean? Where do I go to find out? I need a wise man, said one of the priests to the little boy. Um, I'll tell you what, when you look at Psalm 8, when I consider the work of your hands, the heavens, your glory is greater than the heavens. So don't be surprised that this star we've referred to back in Genesis, the star that shows up in Numbers, the psalmist, King David, writes, which you have ordained. You see, when Christopher Columbus sailed to America, how did he get back without a compass? He followed his star because the stars have ordained paths. The stars go in the same route every night. If you know the star your house is in, uh, I mean, you stand out there at midnight, turn in a circle, whatever star is immediately above you is your star. And if you ever get lost in the bush, look for that star and then wander until it's in the middle of your view when you're standing uh, on the ground. You'll be home. I know there are quicker ways to, to get home than that. But in reality, that's how Christopher Columbus did it. And that's how the wise men did it, too. They were looking for a star. They saw the star. They knew it meant a king. So they went straight to the right place where the King Herod, King Horrid, as he's called in the book, actually lived. And they found out where they should go, not from the star. They weren't following the star. They found out from the scriptures, which is a prophecy in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. So this is sort of a, a bit of a summary, Joseph. Uh, again, an encouragement for people to read uh, out of the Psalms and also follow the thread on stars all the way through scripture. Okay. 
All right, one last question, if you don't mind, John, to, to, to quickly uh, finish up before we go on to Diane. He's going to be doing a great look into the Miracle Mothers. Um, you mentioned there the Magi, right, from the magic, from the machine, from the power, right? And if you go back to your sort of traditional view of your three wise men, right, and you have a look and there's a little connection with race in there as well because in the traditional view you have one of the magi who was very dark skinned you have another magi who's fairly sort of middle brown skinned and you have a very fair light skinned magi as well now i read out a prophecy earlier about the kings from three different places who had come to give presents it's a reference to the king's of these three different places and the kings, the magi, the wise men, the three kings who actually came um, at the time of Jesus to present presents, the presence of gold, frankincense and myrrh, right? Can you comment a little bit on that, a little bit about the three kings versus many kings versus do we know how many kings there are? And also that interesting little connection that there is with race, because we dealt with race and racism and everything like that uh, a couple of streams back as well. So everybody go and check that out. But uh, yeah. a, a little comment on that, if you wouldn't mind. Yes, and I'll just remind people of that because it's really a worthwhile... In fact, we've done a couple of programs on that. Perhaps yeah, Sam yeah. can put up the links to our previous whole seminar on race and then our last program. But I was reminded of this again. I don't know about you, but I like the Antiques Roadshow because I'm rapidly becoming an antique myself. <laughs> um, you know you're getting old when you actually see your mum's stuff in the, in the antique shop, the stuff you grew up with. So you've been on this planet for quite a while. But on the Antique Roadshow, they, they, they did a brilliant thing. They had a whole program of Holocaust survivors and some of the things that had endured through the Holocaust. It was brilliant, worthwhile looking at. I'd encourage you, scroll up their YouTube, etc., where they've got it stored, BBC website, Antiques Roadshow. And there's one Jewish gentleman there who makes a very powerful comment because it's so popular today to say we're all one race. And he made a very brilliant comment when he said Hitler's policies were designed to destroy only one race, okay? Not multiple races because he wanted to keep what Hitler regarded as the white races and the Jewish said, we are one race. So it is in that meaning and he didn't mean anything else. If you have a meaning for race, which puts everyone together, you have lost the whole thread of what that Jewish man meant. You have lost the whole plot when it comes to understanding even the Holocaust. But back to Joseph's question, uh, when you have a look, there's another reference to uh, the one that Joseph read, and it's in uh, chapter 60 of uh, Isaiah. Now, Isaiah lived after King David, right? And so it's really a good commentary on Psalm 72, which refers to three different kings. And he applies it, well, first of all, the application, like much in scripture, you will find that there's the primary meaning. And then there's also a secondary or long-term meaning. So if you're wanting to know how to read your Bible, you'll find it's easy to read at a kid's level. Just the first reading is, is the one that makes sense. But often there's meanings behind it. And so when you look at the three kings in Psalm 72, fine, it's easy to read. When you look at the three kings in this uh, here, it's David, sorry, it's Isaiah making a commentary on it. And then it follows up a little later. So here's how verse 60, chapter 60, rather, in Isaiah starts. Arise, shine, for your light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. And then it goes on and it says, 
for behold darkness shall cover the people but the lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and the gentiles shall come to the light and kings to the brightness of your rising so the whole subject is about darkness now this time it's spiritual darkness not just physical darkness it's spiritual darkness and there's a light coming to remove the spiritual darkness that's the context and then it says the gentiles will come well the wise men <coughs> from the middle east were not jews they may have been influenced by the jew daniel but they were not jews they were therefore gentiles most of you watching this program today are not jews some of you are definitely gentiles like me i mean my ancestors used to kill their enemies and eat at least one of them for a ceremonial proof that we were bigger and better than they were so we have some pretty bad stuff in our history we were gentiles and the light came to rise on our darkness and then it says lift up your eyes have a look make sure you don't miss this and then it talks about the multitude of camels shall come the dromedies oh actually aren't there camels on the christmas cards and ephah and they they from sheba shall come they will bring gold and by the time you've got down to verse 10 you will find that there's the kings of tarshish there's the kings of sheba and there's the kings of seba read it for yourself now the one thing we do know about these people if you look up tarshish in your bible you will find there's two references to it one is to a place that seems to be like Spain where Paul went, but the other is to the book of Daniel where one of the princes is named Tarshish. Now, if, if their families are like my family, do you know why my name is John? Because my grandfather was called John and his grandfather was called John. And I'm pretty sure if you're Prince Tarshish, you wanted your memory to not be forgotten. And by the way, a king from Tarshish, a prince, I mean, haven't you ever stopped and thought they come to Herod and then Herod, it's even there in the commentary, Herod and all the people were troubled. Three blokes on camels and the whole nation is fearing? What's going on? These aren't just ordinary people. They are men with power. In fact, they haven't you ever laughed at the story? They go straight into the palace. They hardly even knock and everybody stands aside and they go in. These were men whose power was known. So as one of the ancient commentators said, they came with their whole entourage. These weren't just blokes traveling through the desert trying to find a way to get to a crummy little manger. These were important people and they went straight to the king. Someone had probably prepared the way, which tells you they were even more important. And they were Tarshish, they were Seba, and they were Sheba. And you'll find that, look up the history books, they are three different colors, white, brown, and black. Look up the history books. Fascinating stuff. So when you look at the Christmas cards and you, you have so many people saying, oh, there's no evidence there were three kings. Yes, there is. Historically, that's where the theologians, that's where the early church fathers went to give you that concept as uh, the, the, the three important parts, not just from the presence, the gold, the frankincense and the myrrh. That's not the source of it at all. It's the reference to the three kings from these three places. And they were three different colors. And uh, Diane, uh, you even we grew, grew up in an Anglican background, and they, they had names originally, didn't they? Yes, they did. The well, it's actually from, from an old hymn. Um, and I, I would have to look up the hymn, but, but yes, uh, it's um, that, that Christmas um, hymn, We Three Kings of Orient Are. Mm -hmm. um, 
most people only know the first verse, but if you read the rest of the verses, it does actually name. The one that I remember is Caspar. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, I yeah. used to like Caspar the ghost <laughs> as a kid. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I think Wouldn't one of the others that... was Melchior, but I, I can't yeah. remember the third one. <laughs> Wasn't one Belshazzar or something like yeah. that? Yeah, one was Belshazzar. Yeah, yes. That's, that's yeah. correct. Yeah. 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 So yeah, in, interesting, uh, interesting history, interesting connection. And say, so mm. recommend you go back and you have a look at our Christ the Creating King of Christmas conference we did last year. Uh, we thought we'd do this special this year rather than the whole thing again because all that content, of course, stays up. So go and check that out. That will prove to be very, very useful uh, uh, to you as well. All right, what we're going to do? We're going to move very quickly on to Diane's part of this evening, Miracle Mothers. Um, but remember, if you have any questions, and I have seen we've had one or two questions coming. So we'll get to them in just a moment. If you do have any questions, you know the drill, the cue, and then your question that helps Sam find it so he can uh, do it nice and quickly afterwards. A reminder that we now have the super chat running and everything else like that. So uh, praise the Lord for that. Thank you, because it's you who's got us to that point by watching and sharing and everything else. Make sure you like the video. Make sure you share the video. Uh, comment if you can. And, uh, of course, if you can support us through the Super Chat or the donations, please do that as well. But, Diane, uh, do you want to get your uh, PowerPoint up? It's as simple as clicking on it for you. I've got it up here so we can get that up and ready to go. There yes, it is up there on the screen for us so you can scroll through. So, um, yeah, go for it. Miracle Mothers. Yes, well, um, Christmas is about... Uh, a baby being born, so it's always useful to look at mothers. Now, every mother will tell you that uh, her baby is a little miracle, and there is a grain of truth in that, and uh, we'll, we'll come to that in a minute. Now, Joseph mentioned a really important prophecy. In fact, it was the first prophecy of the Saviour, and that um, <clears throat> reminds us that God's priorities were always to save people. In fact, the plan of salvation was set, was set in place before the foundation of the world. And as soon as we need it, it went into action. And so we need to go all the way back to the first mother in order to understand the birth of Jesus. Now, the birth of Jesus was a real event in real history, but in between that and the beginning, there were some other really important events in real history, which involved God's special intervention. So again, here is that prophecy, and it was said to Satan, but in the woman and the man's, but in the woman's hearing, I will put enmity between you and the woman, that's Satan and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And that was a prophecy that was given as soon as we needed salvation. So that was always God's priority. And he stuck to that plan through all sorts of adventures. And we'll look at a few of them um, uh, today. But uh, Adam and Eve heard that. And straight after God gave his judgment, we have this statement. The man called his wife's name Eve because she would be the mother of all the living. Now, they've just been condemned to death. But in the face of death, humanity would live on. So here we have an important principle because Eve does have a baby. And the first thing she says 
is I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. So she was fit and well, of course, to uh, produce a baby. She was, um, there was nothing wrong with her. Um, but she realized that babies are more than biology. And the same applies today because human beings are body, soul and spirit. So babies are more than biology and we can't just treat them as sort of extraneous pieces of tissue before they're born. Now, Eve went on to have a, a number of children. She had Cain and Abel and then Seth, who are named in the book of Genesis. But we are also told that there were other sons and daughters. And so this was the beginning of a long line of people that is eventually going to lead to the birth of the Saviour. So we need to go a little bit more ahead. God's plan of salvation was uh, involved making himself a people. Now I say making himself a people. Uh, he, there, there's a, a sort of one of those odd Ogden Nash um, poems, you know, how odd of God to choose the Jews. Well, uh, in fact, he didn't choose them. He made them uh, because he started off with one man and one woman. And that one woman was to become the mother of that nation. Now, it would be a few generations before it even looked vaguely like being a nation. But um, Eve, sorry, um, God did choose Abraham, but he equally chose Sarah, his wife. So she was to become the mother of this nation. And it came into, uh, into uh, being because of God's special intervention so let's have a look at sarah and uh, her story it's quite a long story and involves all sorts of adventures which we won't go into but we will just look at some of the uh, some of the events um we are referred to sarah in the book of hebrews in that wonderful list of the great heroes of the faith and sarah is listed as one of them by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, now remember that, since she considered him faithful who had promised. So remember that promise was first given right back in the beginning in the hearing of Adam and Eve. So it was given to them, even though the curse was uh, directed at Satan. And generations have uh, remembered that promise and we finally get down to Sarah and who considered him faithful. So it's all about God being faithful, but she was a woman of faith because she believed that. Now, God had uh, promised to Abraham, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing in you. All the families of the earth will be blessed. So it wasn't just the immediate physical descendants uh, of Abram. All of the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. So there's more than biology in this, just like individual babies are more than biology. But it wasn't getting off to a good start because Sarah didn't have any children. She was barren. She had no child. The um, uh, Genesis tells us that quite, quite plainly. And after various adventures, uh, you can read in Genesis 17, 
God reiterates this promise with a bit more detail and he gives Abram and Sarai new names. So he said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Now we know from the history that indeed some of her descendants were kings. But uh, Abram fell, about his, fell on his face and laughed. Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old and shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? So they were a bit sceptical and who can blame them? And uh, Sarah had the same response as well. Uh, we read a little bit later, Sarah laughed to herself and saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have this pleasure or shall I have pleasure? Now we need to put their ages into the context here. Remember in the beginning when everything was very good, even when God condemned them to death, it took a long time for them to actually die, um, for people to die, because death is a process. So before the flood, when the uh, environment was much better and there were very, very, there were no mutations in, the, uh, in human beings to start with and maybe only a few before the flood, people lived over 900 years. And then after the flood, when everything was devastated, lifespan started going down quite rapidly but they were still going down by the time of Abraham and Sarah. So Abraham lived to be 175 and Sarah lived to be 127. And uh, so in terms of their total lifespan, being 90 and being 100 wasn't, on, was, wasn't having one foot in the grave, <laughs> but it was an age when people do lose their fertility and particularly women lose their fertility. Um, now, it, it, these days it's around about 50, but then if you live in a Western, a modern Western country, you, you can anticipate living to, to 70 or 80. So, uh, so they were late middle-aged rather than um, the extreme frail-aged. But even so, this was a serious biological problem um that they were uh past the age now this time when uh god comes to them after several visits uh, in genesis 18 we are god actually gives a time commitment and he says sarah your wife shall bear a son and you shall call his name isaac um interesting <coughs> it's a, a name that means laughter and you might think about their skeptical response um I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. All right. So God is committing himself to a particular time now. It's no longer just, a, well, this might happen sometime in the, um, in the future. And he specifically gives this promise to Sarah as well. So, so God has committed himself to Sarah as much as he has to Abraham. And so we have recorded for us in Genesis 18, I will surely return to you about this time and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. So God is uh, committing himself to Abraham and Sarah. This is definitely going to happen in a year. Now, there is a biological problem here. Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. 
right? They might not have had one foot in the grave, but they were certainly past the age of fertility. And that is explicitly stated in the next sentence. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. We know when that happens with women um, because their cycle, their uh, reproductive cycle finishes. And even though they may have several decades more to live, they can no longer have children. So that, that had finished with Sarah and uh, a real miracle was needed. Now, there was also a political problem because in uh, all uh, Abrams and uh, Abraham and Sarah's various adventures, they, they went to, to uh, a place called Gerar, which was, um, or Gera, which was ruled by a character named Abimelech, who was a big, powerful king. And he had a harem like big, powerful kings did in those days. And Sarah was taken into that harem. Now, uh, we have to remember that when big, powerful kings had harems in those days, it wasn't just about sex. It was also about status. And to have a high-status woman in your harem was a way of making a, a political uh, agreement with the uh, surrounding kings. Women were treated like trophies. Um, women have been treated badly through, throughout history. It's part of the, <laughs> the sin of the human race. Uh, and so this was one way in pagan societies that um, women of high status were just used as sort of trophies. So Sarah was taken into Abimelech's harem, although we are told she was very beautiful. So uh, Abimelech was certainly attracted to her personally. Um, and remember, Abraham was considered a prince among the surrounding nations. In spite of that, God protects Sarah and he eventually restores her to Abraham, in fact, quite quickly. Remember, he'd made a time commitment. This is going to happen within a in a year. And we know how long it takes for a baby to be born. Uh, they don't just instantly appear. Uh, it takes a while. And so God had to act quickly, and, and he did. He basically went to Abimelech and just said, give back Abraham's wife or I'll kill you. And Abimelech knew when he'd been, when he was uh, facing a higher power, uh, and, and he did. So anyway, the, that promise was fulfilled. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he promised. So Sarah's faith was rewarded because she considered that the one who promised was faithful. So she conceived, bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time God had spoken to him. So God keeps his promises. We can always depend on that. So we start off with one baby, now, we have to go to the next generation and the next generation after that before we have anything that looks like a, um, a nation. So the next generation was Rebecca, who was married to Isaac, and indeed she was barren as well. But in answer to prayer, she conceived. So Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebecca to be his wife. And he prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. And in fact, she had two sons. They were twins, Jacob and Esau. Now, they have an interesting story uh, themselves, which we won't go into. Um, let's go to the next generation after that. And here we have two women, Leah and Rachel. 
two wives. Now, one was unloved by her husband, one was loved. But either way, they were both blessed by God. So let's look at Leah first. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. Now, notice that. Remember Eve saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. So here again, we have the help of the Lord. So the Lord opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And eventually, Leah has six sons. And here are the names of the tribes of Israel. So now we're getting to the nation that God is creating. So we have Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. Now, what about Rachel? Well, eventually, God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. So once again, with the help of the Lord, she was able to have a son. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph. Then she has another a prayer. May the Lord add to me another son. And indeed, she does have another son. Uh, his name was Benjamin. And sadly, she died when he was born. But we now have the, uh, the patriarchs or the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. So we're now getting to that nation that God had promised back in Abraham's time. So between Leah and Rachel, uh, they gave birth to eight of the 12 patriarchs. The, the other four were born to the maidservants. And it's very interesting to see the, um, the, the line here. If we look at Leah's sons, right, Levi eventually had a descendant uh, named Aaron and Moses, right? Remember, they were brothers. And Aaron gave rise to the priestly line. Now, eventually, John the Baptist, who has a role uh, in the, uh, the birth of Jesus and in Jesus' uh, ministry, uh, he is of the priestly line. Remember, he was the son of a priest. And we also have Judah. Now, here we have the uh, fulfillment of that prophecy about kings shall be born from you. And in fact, uh, David is a descendant of Judah. And we have the royal line, which eventually does lead to Jesus. Now, Rachel's sons also blessed um, the people of God enormously. Remember Joseph, uh, who was uh, who went to uh, Egypt under uh, pretty awful circumstances, but eventually was put in a position where he could um, minister to the whole of the, the by then it was a clan of, um, of the uh, uh, Israelites and um, when they came down to Egypt. And so he certainly has a role in preserving this family and this nation and Benjamin Remember the little tribe of Benjamin, right? the Apostle Paul, when he's giving his credentials uh, that he eventually uh, turned his back on, he said those are all rubbish <laughs> compared to knowing Christ. But he was a descendant of Benjamin. So he, he was a, a Hebrew of Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin. So here we have that nation being established. So we eventually come to the birth of the Messiah and we have to look at Mary, the Messiah's mother. So we have a message from God 
sent by an angel. Angels are messengers of God uh, sent by an angel to Mary. And this was the message. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and called the son of the most high. Now, Mary is an intelligent young woman who knows the facts of life. And so she says to the angel, well, how is this going to happen? And the many of the modern translations uh, translate what she said as, uh, you know, because I'm a virgin. Uh, but in fact, what she said was a bit more biological. <laughs> and uh, uh, if, if you go back to the original, how can this be seeing I know not a man? In other words, if I'm going to have a baby, I'm only half the equation. So what's going to happen? And the angel does answer her question. It's a good question. And the answer is the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So the baby that was going to be born was going to be called the Son of God. And Mary accepted this answer. And so she said, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And I'm sure that uh, after, the, after she had said that, that is when it actually happened. So we have an interesting uh, name for Jesus here, the Son of God. Now, he was the first person to be called the Son of God. If we go back through the genealogy of Jesus, the list of all of the forebears of Jesus, and you can read that in Luke chapter 4, and I won't go through the whole list. Let, let's just look through uh, the, the last few generations before we get to the beginning. So we have the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Interesting, Adam is called the son of God because he was a new creation born of a life-giving spirit, right? Because human beings are body, soul and spirit and we are told that God breathed life into Adam when he created him. Now, there's also another interesting statement about Adam that relates to Jesus and we can read about that in 1 Corinthians where Paul is explaining um, about, uh, well, about the resurrection and about uh, salvation uh, and the need for it. And uh, so Paul explains to the Corinthians, thus the first man became a living being and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now notice Adam, uh, Jesus is called the last Adam. Uh, there is an old hymn that describes him as the second Adam uh, from a, a hymn that's called Praise to the Holiest in the Height uh, to the, the tune of uh, from the Dream of Gerontius. And the, the word second scans into the music better, so it, it's all right. But remember, it's the last Adam. After Jesus has come, salvation has been accomplished. And uh, so Jesus is the last Adam. So it's a work of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, the angel who um, visited Joseph explained this as well. Joseph, son of David, this is what the angel said to David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son 
and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So that's why he's called Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. So we are told several interesting things about the promised saviour. He would be the seed of the woman. He would be fully human, born of a woman. He would be the last Adam. So even though he is born of a woman, he is a new creation in a way. And he is the son of God. So how can we put that all together to explain the birth of Jesus? Because a lot of people scoff at the birth of Jesus and say, oh, that's rubbish, you can't have a virgin birth. Ah, but when God is at work, nothing is impossible. And in fact, Mary herself said that. So let's have a look at how life begins or how human life begins uh, to put it into its con context now. We all begin life looking like this. Aren't we handsome? <laughs> we all, all begin life as one round cell. And the interesting thing is that round cell is either male or female. That is determined from conception. So you don't have to wait until you, um, uh, until you have a body. Uh, you are already male or female. Uh, and that means that meddling with the body later on in the life in your life is not going to change that. So we are male or female. That's determined from conception. Okay. Now, let's have a look at how we uh, can tell whether a cell is a male or a female cell because you can. All of our genetic material is contained, encoded in DNA. When a cell divides, that has to be all very, very neatly packaged up and tidied up into a number of discrete packages which become visible under a microscope and they're called chromosomes. And so you can look at a dividing cell and you can see these and you can tell whether that cell is from a male or a female. So here are the chromosomes from a female and you, if you count them, you end up with uh, 46 altogether. And they're all arranged neatly in pairs. Now, notice the first 22 are just given numbers, uh, 1 to 22. The final pair are a little bit different because it is these that determine whether that cell is a male or a female. Now, these are the chromosomes of a female. So that final pair is called X. Now, because there are two of them, you can summarize the chromosomes for a female, right, as 46XX, in other words, two Xs, and that makes that cell from a female. From a male, again, we have 22 pairs, so they're just named uh, 1 to 22, plus another pair, but it's a mismatched pair, right? It's an X, which is the same as the Xs in, in the female cell, but there's another chromosome that females do not have, and it's called a Y chromosome. So if we were to summarize the chromosomes for a male, we have 46 uh, XY. So here we are comparing the two. Okay, females 46 XX, males 46 XYs. Now, when it comes to making the next generation, all of those pairs have to split up because one of each pair will be given to the offspring of a man and a woman, right? 
So each parent is going to give half of their chromosomes to the next generation or to the next offspring. So all the pairs have to be split up. So let's have a look at what happens there. So for the mother, we start off 46 and two X's and the cells do actually literally split up, interesting process, which we won't go into, but you end up with cells that contain 23 total chromosomes, including one X, now either one of that pair. For the fathers, an interesting thing happens. We split up all the pairs, but all of the cells will not be the same, right? They will be, each one will have 23 chromosomes, but some of them will contain an X and some of them will contain a Y because the X and the Y get separated from one another. So when it comes to the next generation, if the uh, child to be born is a male or a son from the mother, he will get 23 chromosomes, including one X. So men do need their one X chromosome. In fact, you can't live without one X chromosome. Uh, from their father, they will get another 23 and a Y. Because when you put that together, we go back to the 46XY, which is the uh, male combination. All right. Now, how does that work for the promised saviour? Right. Remember the three things, the seed of the woman predicted right back in the time of Eve. So 23X, that's there. Right. The last Adam. Where did Adam get his Y chromosome from? It was a new creation. It was a work of the Holy Spirit. His whole body was the work of, or came alive, the Holy Spirit. So he was a new creation. So we have the last Adam. We have a male, so we have a Y chromosome. When we put that together, we have 46XY. We have a male, the son of God. So the promise that was given way back in Eve's time has now been fulfilled. And on the way, we have three miracle mothers in direct line when we go from Eve to Mary to Jesus. This is real history of the real world. It's not just a mythical story or a nice, uh, interesting story uh, with a moral meaning or a theological meaning. Uh, this is the real history of the real world. And in fact, Joseph is uh, going to now uh, tell us a bit more about some of the uh, history around Christmas. So if we can go back to um, the uh, the uh, well, we can finish the full screen and go back to Joseph and John and uh, and Sam and continue our history lessons. And I'll Joseph, should we there. have a pause for a question or two at the moment? That would be a very good idea before we move on to our last part. Sam, how are we doing with the questions? Good, we've had a few questions in. Uh, I can have a look to see. We've got a few. We've got lots of people in the chat so far, which is always good. And of course, we've had another super chat in, or well, super sticker from Jerome. Thank you so much. I don't know why, but the program we use yeah, just gives us a description of the. <laughs> so we've got a pair character sticking, stretching his arm forward, and raising a thumb up. If anybody so. wants to see, I'm, I'm watching live as we go. 
that's what it's supposed to look like if it goes into focus at all. Um, it's not going to go into focus now, is it? Uh, there we go. No, it's a bit blurry. No, it's not going to get. It's a bit blurry. It is, it is exactly <laughs> yeah. what the description says. It's a pair character sticking his thumb up, but for some reason, I don't know why. Uh, it's not. It's not translating that. But thank you very much, Jerome, and thank you very much, everybody else who's also uh, supported us in this way. We really do appreciate it. So, uh, and by the yeah. way, Joseph. By the way, Joseph. Uh, in in the Star Book, his dad grows pears. That's what his father's name means, Perry. Uh, right. So there's all that sort of pair characters in the book too is so old name old fruit great and tasty great stuff see it's a fountain of knowledge there um how are we doing with questions what have we got so far sam okay so we've got um this this wasn't phrased in the way of a question however i think there's probably might be something to mention here uh this is from pedro he said my eastern european colleague said that a pope changed the calendar many years ago the original date for christ's birth is in january all right. Well, I will so touch a very little. Yeah, well, I'll touch a very little bit on that as we go into our sort of the historical look of Jesus. Um, we're going to talk not only about the chronology, and that's very important. And Diane touched a bit on that. That leads quite nicely into what I want to talk about. We're also going to talk a little bit about the sort of the archaeology and the history and the way that the calendars line up. Because, of course, one of the questions is, well, if Herod died, you know, um, at, at, at four, the year 4 BC, then how can he be the same Herod that Jesus, at the time that Jesus was around, if Jesus was supposed to be born at naught? right how does it all balance out so we'll talk a little bit about that later but yes you are pretty much right there is some confusion with the pope it's uh mostly due to do with power uh, and who can prove to be the most i mean there's a whole issue over easter at the same thing right between the celtic festival of easter and the roman catholic festival of easter so um there's a there's a whole interesting story into that and that's one of the reasons why at creation research we really encourage people to delve into history because the more you delve into history the more that you can actually get a bigger and fuller and more complete picture uh particularly in like with in like with scripture so i'll talk a bit more about that as we go further down um well, i'll, do I'll throw something in there joseph one thing that i found very interesting i was preaching in northern ireland remember when we were allowed to do things like that mm. and travel mm. around the globe and I was in James Usher's area, right? You know, James Usher, the history of the world, 4004 BC, etc. Now, I had always had James Usher portrayed in my mind through the university as a sort of uh, kook, you know, someone who knew nothing. He lived before the days of Google, so how could he get anything right? Um, I came away having changed my mind totally because if James, James Usher wanted to check things, he was not only, you know, high up in the Protestant church, he was the only man that I've ever come across who was both a bishop in the Catholic church and the Protestant church at the same time. He was held in such high regard. So if he wanted to find out anything, no Google, he would just make sure he got shipped off to the, the library in the Vatican and could check heaps and heaps and heaps of original documents himself. But that's not the point of my answers, just to illustrate who he was. His whole book on chronology was not really about finding the age of the earth. It was really about the fact by his day, the celebration of Easter had gotten so far away from the Passover event that it's tied to New Testament, Old Testament, that he was, they pleaded with him, hey, sort this out, get Easter back in the right place. So he went to years and years and years of searching 
calendars, chronologies, etc., to try and make sure Easter was in the right place because it's an astronomical um, Passover event. You may remember the details in the Old Testament, and he did sort that out. But in reality, his scholarship also led him to reaffirm what Martin Luther had found, to reaffirm what Eusebius had found, to reaffirm what the office had found, that the world is a young place, 6,000 years old at the max. So all of this issue about even Christmas time is related to the age of the earth and the evolutionists want to get rid of Christmas and Easter. So they got rid of, first of all, the origin of the planet. So again, this is a totally interconnected uh, history and Joseph's point is valid. Make sure you check the whole picture, not just the bits you like or don't like. Great stuff. Do we have another question before we move on, Sam? Yes, we do. We've got one from my dad. Hey. Uh, uh, from Will Jenkins. Hi, all. Talking of stars, it's the season for the Earth's meteor showers in the mm -hmm. Northern Hemisphere. If you care to look upwards, question, are meteorites of any interest from a creationist point of view? Well, I'll, I'll give you my first bit. But first of all, congratulations to Jim Creek from New Zealand for giving us the names of the three people authoritatively, Gaspard and, well, we got all of them right, really, between the three of us. But thanks, James, or Jim, Cheers. for reminding us. Uh, a, a little plug for Jim. His wife, Kathy, does a lot of homeschooling in New Zealand. And Jim and Kathy and Diane and I and Joseph next year will be starting in our post-COVID world a whole new series of... Um, creation conferences for homeschoolers in New Zealand. So look at our website, contact Kathy, and let her know you're interested. That'll be beginning mid-February. Okay, my bit on meteorites. No, I have personally never found a single one. <laughs> I've got meteorites in my collection, but I've always had to get them from somebody else. Very frustrating when you're a rock collector. I don't have my own meteorite. Um, but they are intriguing because to the best of my knowledge, well, I've been to meteorite craters all around the planet. I've seen these explosion events, but they are superficial. They are something that is not happening before Noah's flood, right? They are something that's happened after Noah's flood, and most of them are superficially on the surface, whether it's a meteorite crater or whether it's meteorites. And Joseph, have you got any meteorites you've found? I haven't found any, but I've got one sitting right here. Wow from our collection this is actually it's it's uh, it's from our good friend jim um who lives down on the isle of Wight, who gets these and this is actually a northwest african meteorite and it's been given the name nwa869 because yes they really do find that many that they just have to number them at this point but it's quite a well-known meteor um that they have records of when it came down uh it's metal it's magnetic you can stick stuff to it right and uh one thing that I've always found fascinating with meteorites is you find a lot of these actually come from the star trails of comets. So you have a comet which goes around the sun, right? And as it gets closer to the sun and closer to the sun, it begins to melt because a comet is basically just a great big mass of rock and ice. And then you have a trail 
that it leaves behind. And as the Earth passes through these different uh, sort of tails uh, from the large comets, you end up some of these dust particles and rock particles end up falling down into the atmosphere, which is basically what a shooting star is, right? It's a, the, these little particles burning up. And as you pass through a very, very big uh, comet trail, you end up some of these very large chunks coming down and actually being large enough to partially burn up but end up crashing into places like Northwest Africa, where you get people go around to collect them, right? So it's a fascinating thing, but you know, we have yet to find a source of these comets. Now, I mean, if the Earth, uh, or rather if the universe is really 14 and a half billion years old and the solar system is supposed to be somewhere like about 10 million years, uh, 10 billion years old rather, uh, somewhere between 8 to 10 billion years, the Earth is supposed to be about 4.5 to 5 billion years, right? They keep changing the dates. Most of these comets should have really disappeared by now. Because you remember, every time they get close to the sun, they melt a little bit and they get smaller and smaller and smaller. Well, if these have been going and going and going, there really should be no what we call short-term comets. They're comets that come around uh, every few years to every few hundred years. There really shouldn't be any left by now because there simply isn't a source of them. Oh, we've had to invent a source and we call it the Oort cloud, right? There's absolutely no evidence for the Oort cloud in the slightest. But there has to be there because if the Earth is really 5 billion years old and the universe is 14 and a half billion years old, then you've got to have a source for these short-term comets. But there really simply isn't any evidence for that. So actually, the fact that you can still find these and the fact that there is an abundance of these on Earth and the fact that there's an abundance of them keep coming, right? If you want to go have a look outside and you live in the Northern Hemisphere, look up tonight and you'll probably see some, uh, really just shout to the fact that the Earth and the universe is not really that old at all, um, especially the solar system part of it. So there's a little interesting uh, comment, but yes, we do have quite a number of these. Um, there's one, one thing that I want to comment on, then I'll ask Diane to talk about the article she just wrote about okay. a star mystery evil companion. Um, for those of you who are out there, uh, we have a real need in our area because we haven't collected meteorites at all. We've got them like uh, Joseph's got them. I've got a few in our collection here in Australia. But if you have found any or you have any that you don't want and you want to put them in a creation museum, then uh, yes, you're willing to accept them, Joseph? I'm very willing to accept them. Like I say, we've only got a few. I mean, this is actually our largest one that we've got, right? Um which we managed to acquire a couple of weeks back. But uh, most of the ones we've got are tiny little chunks. So we really want to yeah. make, you know, me and John, we love rocks. We love digging up big fossils, right? But when we come into our creation museums, we want to give the whole of scripture as history and everything that you can see on the world around you from the perspective of scripture, right? From the perspective of the Bible. So whether we're dealing with fossils or plants or dinosaurs, and one thing we do seem to be lacking on is kind of the astronomy and the meteorites and all that kind of stuff. So yes, we're always willing to accept any donations here in the UK and the USA um, and in Australia as well. That's good. Diane, in just last week's evidence news, our, our regular mail out, and Diane's the, the uh, science editor of that, does a great job, um, put together an article last week on an evil companion to our sun, and it does refer to the fact that the, everything's winding down. So give us a summary of that, Diane, and tell people how they can get on it. Yes, yes, it was uh, fr from an article that came out. We just trawl the normal scientific news that goes out to everyone and we just help people have a better understanding of uh, the science news that they would be exposed to. And we came across this article 
about stars. And there is a theory that uh, in the uh, Big Bang, uh, eventually stars were formed and they started off formed as binaries or triplets. In other words, pairs or, um, or small groups, right, three uh, orbiting one another. And uh, so this article was looking at that theory because there are so many of these uh, out in the universe. Uh, there, there are sort of millions of them. And this uh, article made the point, well, if all stars are born as uh, binaries or triplets, um, you know, what's happened to our pair? We've only got one sun. <laughs> and uh, so there is actually a theory that when the solar system was being formed, and there are various ideas as to how this was done, uh, there was actually a binary pair, but our sun got most of the mass. So we ended up with uh, most of the mass being in our sun. And there was a secondary or a, the other pair, other part of the binary pair, which became a sort of small brown dwarf. And part of this theory about binary stars forming is that uh, sometimes they split up. So our sun may have lost its binary pair, but it uh, moved away. And, but every now and again, it orbits, it comes back within um, sort of vague distance of the uh, solar system, enough to disturb a few space rocks and uh, send some of them crashing to Earth. So again, we have a evolutionist theory about meteorites. Uh, and of course, because evolutionists believe there's been sort of multiple extinctions, most notably the one about the, the dinosaurs, uh, maybe this binary twin that got lost. And so it's been given the name Nemesis. <laughs> Which, uh, which means sort of a, a, an evil enemy uh, who's going to bring things undone. But uh, there's no evidence for this at all. In fact, the, the only thing that's coming undone are the evolutionist theories. And so if they really want to know where did the stars come from, where did the sun come from, you need to go back to the description in Genesis, which was given by the one who made them there in the first place, and as we've talked about in this chat tonight, the stars were put there to be signs, times and seasons for people. And God used that to um, tell people that, yes, this great event is going to happen. And those wise men, those magi, they recognized that. So God put those stars there right back in the beginning with the plan of salvation. In mind, the plan of salvation was set in place and the stars are very much part of it. So forget about any evil nemesis. <laughs> Concentrate on what God says about the stars and what we actually observe. We do observe those constellations. We do observe the movement of them, the signs, the times and the seasons. And we know from history how God has used them. And that fits beautifully with that Psalm 8 where in verse 3 it yes. says, the sun, the moon, and the stars, which thou hast ordained. They were put in place for a particular purpose. They were not just random pretty bits. They had a purpose, and that event actually is tied into the beginning. So God is an unbelievably powerful God who 
you and I can't can't even figure this out because I'm not sure what's on the shopping list today when we go shopping, and I might even forget it by the time I get to the shop. But God isn't like that. He's an all-knowing, all-powerful God, and the and the coming of the Savior was ordained even in the stars. Amen. Amen. Great stuff. All right, I think we'll leave the um, questions there for the time being. Keep the questions coming, though. We'll try and have one more session before we finish. But I've got a little session that I'd like to talk about, talking about the history of Christ, but also the importance of understanding the chronology and the history that's tied up there. So let's get a nice uh, screen on the thing. There you can see our... our uh, promo there once again for Starboy. This is from our UK website. Uh, if you're in Australia, you'll have to order it. Uh, if you're in the States, you can order it from the UK site, but it probably won't be there by Christmas. Um, but if you're in the UK, you can certainly order it and you've got one or two days to get it in so you have it in time for Christmas. Um, Joseph, can I just interrupt you there a moment? It is available in Australia um, and it, at the moment it should be still there by Christmas if you order it pretty well straight away. Yeah, it's so really we're, we're, we're teetering right on the edge of the uh, potential Christmas shipping time. So get it in as well as we've got other sort of uh, things in our UK shop as well. Again, you've got just about enough time. Who made all the dinosaurs interactive book plus a fossil pack? What happened to the dinosaurs interactive book and a fossil pack and uh, everything else as well. So go and check that out. All right. Question. Who is Jesus Christ? Uh, this is going to be our central question as we delve through this tonight, both looking at the chronology and the history, as well as looking at the archaeological evidence. Um, there's been quite a bit of recent archaeological evidence that's come to light in evidence of the Bible, including evidence of crucifixion from here in the United Kingdom. Now, that's some really fascinating stuff, perhaps more applicable for Easter time, but it still really does show the history of Scripture in a brand new light. And I've actually got some artifacts right down here next to me, which I've got a separate camera hooked up to, which we'll have a look as we go. All right, I'm going to start. I mean, yes, I know it's Christmas and we're talking about Jesus, but I can't help but slip a little fossil in. Um, John, I believe this is actually one of your fossils uh, over in Australia. Is that yes. correct? That's uh, so Jason. We had it at a homeschooling conference, you may remember, and we asked the kids what it was. And one kid said, I go fishing with Dad. I know exactly what that is. We catch them down in the bay. So it's not only uh, ancient in the eyes of even evolutionists, because it's one of those that's been around forever and a day, that skate shark uh, still lives in the harbours uh, down in Victoria. Yeah, we call it a like a guitar fish or something like that because mm. it's shaped a bit like a guitar, right? Um, we've actually got a uh, uh, well, I say a living one. It's a it's a modern one. It's a sort of a preserved one, but it's a, it's it's not alive anymore. But we've actually got one in the museum because I'd quite like to get hold of one of these for our museum collection eventually. Because as you say, John, they are indeed living fossils. But you see our question there. Um, John first introduced me to this question: Who wrote about this fossil fish first? The answer was Eusebius in 325 AD. Okay, who was Eusebius? He was the Bishop of Lebanon. Well, that makes sense because these fish come from Lebanon. In fact, there are lots of fossils come from Lebanon. It's quite a famous place. And he said in AD 325 about these fish, we have received confirmation that the flood rose above the highest mountains. In our day, the fossils of these fish were discovered high up Mount Lebanon thus providing evidence that the old story of the flood is credible. Those who hear this may believe it or not. 
fascinating talk. Not only were they finding fossils of fish, in fact, these fish fossils even smelled, right? They still had soft, gooey stuff in them that when you would crack open, it would stink. Not only were they finding fossils of the fish way back in AD 325, they also claimed that these are the results of Noah's flood. We know because he wrote about this in the Chronicle of Eusebius, the Bishop of Lebanon, in AD 325, translated from the classical Armenian. I mean, do you realise how important studying the history actually is? But you notice one thing. We're in AD 325, and he's accepting the biblical record for the earth and explaining the world around him based off of that biblical record. How old did Eusebius think that the creation was? Well, he thought it was 5,611 years from creation to the taking of Rome by the Goths and he did not live that long after that had happened. So he thought that the earth was somewhere between five to six thousand years old when he was alive. Interesting. I mean, he didn't believe in millions of years at all. Now, if you've listened to us and particularly listened to last uh, week's presentation, you'll know that the idea of millions of years is by no means a new idea. It's by no means a new ideology. The ancient Babylonians were already believing in millions of years. The Hindus translated that from millions to billions to even trillions of years, and the Greeks certainly believed in a version of evolution over many millions of years as well. But here is a man Despite being surrounded by pagan cultures who believed all of this, he firmly believed that the Bible was true, and he believed that the earth was not actually that old. I mean, five and a half thousand years is pretty old to you and me, right? But certainly not very old compared to the millions of years that was pushed at his time and the millions of years that is being pushed today. What's all this got to do with Jesus Christ? Well, it's got everything to do with the age of the earth and who Jesus Christ actually is as our Lord and Saviour. Let me give you an example. Um, today's date is December the 17th, 2021, or December the 18th, 2021, if you live in Australia, because time's like this, right? Um, of course, according to the Hebrew calendar, today is the 13th of Tevet, 5782. Ah, 5782? from the creation of the world. According to the Hebrew calendar, the world is still less than 6,000 years old. Interesting, there's still a group of people today whose their calendar system is based straight out of scripture, straight out of the Torah, and it is less than 6,000 years old. Okay, why does this actually matter? Right. We deal a lot with the age of the earth. We deal a lot with, I mean, we could have gone on and talked about John Calvin and what he believed about the age of the earth, Martin Luther and what he believed about the age of the earth. We can have a look through scripture. We can have a look at the fossils. We can use brilliant evidence from stuff like soft tissue, right, about how young the earth is. In fact, we even spoke about uh, a young universe in the sense of this wonderful meteorite that we've got from Africa, right? And we're looking forward to all of your donations of meteorites as well. But why does this actually matter? What's this got to do with Jesus Christ? And what's this got to do with Christmas time? Well, you know this book, right? It's the Bible. It contains the Old and the New, what? The Old and the New Testament. Testament, that is a legal term, as in your last will and testament. 
Yeah, you've got to understand that the Bible is God's legal dealings with mankind. Um, it's the Old Testament. It's the New Testament. It's the testament of God to man. It's the record of God's legal dealings with mankind from the creation to the fall to the judgment and to the New Testament a saving grace. Of course, scripture talks a lot about testaments, and it talks a lot about legal things. Um, you see, testaments will deal with inheritance, your last will and testament, right? And it has to be historically accurate, otherwise they are invalid. I mean, if great aunt Bertha dies, and she ends up leaving her entire multi-million pound estate to the Battersea Dogs Trust, you know for a fact that her descendants and relatives are going to do every single thing that they can to make sure that it doesn't go there and it comes to them, right? And they will get a lawyer, and they will go through that last will and testament with a fine-toothed comb. And if they can find, hang on a minute, the Battersea is actually spelt wrong, there's one word missing, it doesn't quite fit here, this date doesn't line up, then it's going to be null and void. Um, interesting. Not only do testaments deal with inheritance, not only do you need to be related, there's a relation thing that goes on there, but your testament must be historically accurate, otherwise it is completely invalid, from a legal point of view. Um, Matthew 26 Christ speaking here, for this is my blood of the what? The New Testament, a new legal contract. This blood of the new legal contract is shed for many for the remission of sins. Here is a new legal contract. It is signed in blood and it's for the remission of sins. Paul there, or sorry, we don't know that it's Paul, uh, but the author of Hebrews then takes this one step further and makes this point. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Um, until great aunt Bertha has died, her testament means absolutely nothing. Her money stays firmly in her pocket and her bank account, right? Um, it is not until that that person has died that that last will and testament actually becomes valid and it can be distributed out. Ah, there must be a death of a testator. Can you see where we're going with this? I mean, I wonder if you can start to see how it all lines up with the age of the earth. Interesting. Of course, there's also a, uh, another type of legal dealing in scripture. That's adoption. Romans 8.15, for you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. You know, <clears throat> my church in, uh, in Norwich has quite a number of families who've ended up adopting children. And I can tell you, time and time again, you see uh, the story of the first time that that adopted child called out mummy or called out daddy. And I've seen people in tears because of this, right? It's a beautiful thing when you not only get your child, right? You're legally now uh, this, not just this guardian, but you're legally now this child's parent. But the first time that they call out mummy or daddy, it's almost like there's a, you know, emotional connection there as well as a legal one. It's absolutely beautiful. We have both here. Not only are we now legally bound to Christ, we are also able to cry out, Abba, Father. 
there is an emotional and a legal connection in this adoption. Of course, the Bible also talks about inheritance, Romans chapter 8. The Spirit itself, it says, bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. We've become adopted. If we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, Christ being the Son of God. Our Diane's just dealt with that. If so be that we suffer with him, we may also be glorified together. Not only do we become legally adopted, we are able to become legally adopted because there is a legal contract as the result of the death of the testator. And as we become legally adopted, we then become co-heirs of Christ. We become joint heirs of Christ and we become heirs of God. We receive that inheritance. Um, Jesus in the New Testament uh, Jesus's testament, the contract, the legal dealings concerning the family inheritance must be legally and historically accurate, otherwise it is invalid. Just as the way that our laws happen today, and by the way, most of our laws, certainly in the Western world, are based directly out of scripture, including the laws of inheritance, including the laws of adoption, and they all have to be historically accurate, otherwise they're invalid. You see, Jesus Christ has to be legitimately descended from Adam and Eve, otherwise, ah, um, well, his death means absolutely nothing at all. If Jesus Christ is not related to us, you see, there has to be a relation there. That's a Levitical law. You have to be related to the person that you're trying to redeem. And unless Jesus Christ is related to us, then there's no way that his death means absolutely anything in the slightest. Only descendants of Adam can be saved, and only a descendant of Adam can actually do anything about our sin. Jesus Christ is both of those. You see, Scripture records a real history of real people. Diane dealt with that. Miracle mothers, right? Real history of real people connecting Adam, connecting Eve to Jesus and beyond. You also find that as out of created perfection, the first Adam sinned, continual judgment came down the earth in the form of the flood, the Tower of Babel, the nations and the tribes. And the last Adam, Jesus Christ, is the one who actually made that new legal contract, the New Testament here. Ah, interesting. This is not only a real history of real people. This is a real history of real redemption. Hmm. One missing link. Let's tie this all together, right? A legal contract, a legal dealing. What's this got to do with the age of the earth? What's this got to do with Jesus? What's this got to do with Christmas? Ezra chapter 2, verse 60 to 63. And the children of the priests, Habiah, Koz, Brazilii, they sought their register among those who were reckoned by genealogy, but they were not found. I'll give you a little bit of historical context. The children of Israel have just been let back into the uh, promised land, back into Israel, Judah, the Palestine, the area where their forefathers came from, the area which they'd been taken out of captivity, carried by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. The Medo-Persian Empire had let them go back in, 
right? Famous story of Nehemiah. Let's go build up the walls, right? Well, in the book of Ezra, Ezra went back to establish the priesthood. And he took with him the Levites. The Levites were the priesthood, right? And you had to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that not only were you a Levite, you had to prove that you were legitimately able to be of the priesthood. And here we have these three people where they had a problem. When they were sought their register, when they tried to find, oh yeah, we know you're descended, they could not find a missing link. <clears throat> somehow their great-grandfather had lost the link when they'd gone into captivity. They were no longer able to prove without a shadow of doubt due to this missing link that they were of the priesthood. And what does it say later on? Therefore were they, as polluted, put out from the priesthood. They were missing one link. They could not prove they'd lost their birth certificate. And as a result, they'd been shoved out of the priesthood, unable to participate in anything to do with the temple, in anything to do for the remission of sins or the sacrifice on behalf of the people. They were chucked out of the priesthood as polluted. Are you beginning to see the connection here? Who is Jesus Christ? He's our great high priest. Hebrews talks about that over and over again. He's the great high priest. And as our great high priest, as the one who's actually able to be there mediating between God and man, as the one who's actually there, uh, you know, taking our case to God, the father, the great judge, as the one who actually came and died for our sins, as the one who needs to be not only related to us, he also needs to be descended from Adam. Christ's family tree is extremely important. That's why the two Gospels, Matthew and Luke, actually start with a genealogy. Matthew's is there to prove that Jesus Christ was legitimately a king, descended from David. Um, Luke's there is to prove that he was legitimately a human descended from Adam, that he was actually able to be our graced high priest. As the author of Hebrews goes on to write, Christ's family tree is extremely important to God. In fact, family tree and uh, historical accuracy is so important to God that just because these three people had lost their father's birth certificate, they were chucked out of the priesthood. Christ, who is our great high priest, must have a full, complete and uncorrupt record of who he is, where he comes from, to prove that he can legitimately actually create a new legal contract. Who could redeem? Leviticus talks about the Redeemer law having to be related to you. I mean, you can go and read about it in Ruth and these wonderful historical characters, right? It's there all throughout Scripture. You have to be related. Christ the priest, Christ the family tree is extremely important. Christ as the last Adam, proving that he's descended from Adam. And Christ as bondsman redeemer. He is actually related to us. You realize if you add up all of these chronologies, you can add up Adam to Noah, Noah to Abraham, Abraham to Moses, Moses to Jesus, Jesus to today. And you get of a figure of the earth somewhere around six to 7,000 years. Now, if you want to argue there are gaps in the genealogies, the furthest you can stretch it is to 10,000 years. Now, that does no help to the theory of evolution in the slightest, so you really don't have any need to do that. But if you want to argue, there, argue that there are gaps in the genealogies, 
what you are actually doing is throwing the entire legitimacy of Jesus Christ as our saviour into question. Just like those three men at the time of Ezra had been cast out of the priesthood because their inheritance was questionable, you're doing the same to Jesus Christ. Ah, you're on very dangerous and tricky grounds here. Why do chronologies matter? Because Jesus Christ must be provably descended from Adam. If there are errors of fact, errors of history, errors of law, then our inheritance in Christ is null and void. So let's raise some integrity issues before we have a quick look at some of the artefacts. How long did Jesus take to make anything? Who do realise Jesus created when he came and walked among us? I mean, he turned water into wine. He turned loaves and fishes into feeding, you know, a, a huge multitude of people. He raised the dead. He restored sight to the blind. Ah, he could create things. And he didn't spit. He didn't need a laboratory. He didn't have a magic uh, wand which he could wave and produce lots of stuff. Now, Jesus Christ was the creator. But then don't be surprised, all throughout scripture you can find Jesus Christ as the creator, starting in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, the word who is Jesus Christ is the creator of all things. Colossians 1.16, all things were made by Christ and made for Christ. You see, Jesus Christ did not take time when creating things, he took talent. I mean, he's the creator after all. Ah, nothing to do with time, everything to do with a process, and everything to do with a talent. Okay? Skip forward to Revelation chapter 21. And John writes, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. There was no more sea. And God shall wipe away all the tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death. No more sorrow. No more crying. There will be no more pain. For the former things are passed away. Question, how long will he make, uh, take rather to make it? Will he take six days? Will he need to take millions of years? No, it will happen in the twinkling of an eye. He'll just speak and it is created. You see, one thing we know from both Jesus' creating power on earth and his promise for creating power in the future is when you have the right process, you can create things very quickly. This issue is about Jesus' power and integrity. Um, is he really who he said he is? This is about his power and integrity to judge as well. Ah, you will be judged by every word of your mouth. So I warn you today, if you're the person who's thinking, oh, Jesus Christ didn't really mean what he said when he said he was descended from Adam. Uh, you know, he didn't really mean what he said when he recorded the chronologies in the Old Testament. You will be judged by the words out of your mouth and by especially the fact that you are questioning Christ's integrity and his history, as well as his legitimacy to actually be a saviour. Jesus is our creator. Jesus is our saviour. Jesus is our Lord. And he is our coming judge. Who is Jesus? He is the creator of all. Um, make sure you actually worship him for who he really says he is. All right, best evidence for Jesus. Let's have a little look at some of the history and the archaeology. Just a fascinating little uh, uh, sneak peek. If you want the full presentation, go and check out our conference that we did last year. It was our last ever session with all three of us. Um, but let's have a little look 
had some evidence from history for Jesus Christ and who he says he is. I mean, we've dealt with some of the scriptural stuff. Let's have a look at when Jesus Christ was born. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod. During the time of King Herod? So who was King Herod? I mean, he was called King Horrid in our Starboy book, right? And you find some wonderful little interesting references to him in there as well. Um, some fascinating little things. Who was King Herod? He's often referred to as King Herod the Great. He was the first of a big line of King Herods. He was the descendant of an Edom. I mean, it actually even mentions it here in the Starboy book. I mean, there's a lovely little uh, picture of uh, King Herod being bonked over the head by a wishful Roman, right? Or him imagining bonking King Herod on the edge. Uh, and it says uh, um, King Herod not being a real Jew. Yeah, he was a fake Jew. He was a false Jew. He portrayed himself as a Jew, but he was actually a descendant of Edom. The Edomites were the descendants of Esau. Ah, Jacob and Esau? Diane mentioned them earlier. Um, King Herod actually worked with Mark Antony to help Julius Caesar. And now we're getting into some real Roman politics, right? And it's usually tied up around one woman, Cleopatra, the Egyptian, right? So you've got a wonderful little bit of politics there. Cleopatra was with both Julius Caesar and with Mark Antony and obviously all the calamity that went on there. Caesar died through a knife in his back. Uh, Mark Antony ended up killing, being killed as well. And uh, uh, Cleopatra and ended up Augustus Caesar Julius Caesar's son actually ended up coming to the throne uh, over the empire and then calling a census. But King Herod actually worked with Mark Antony to help Julius Caesar. But he was very good at switching sides when he wanted to. So you'll find he was actually appointed the provincial governor in 47 BC and he was appointed the king of the Jews in 39 BC by the Senate. And he was involved in deep Roman politics actually died in 4 bc and this is where we get an interesting little thing that we mentioned earlier how do we know well i've got a a, a coin up here on the screen but i'm going to actually do one better now i'm going to actually uh bring up my um screen again i'm just going to turn my powerpoint off for a second i'm going to put me up to full screen and then i'm just going to change my camera uh, and this may work it sometimes takes a little second to uh, to actually do but let's see how it how it goes please work it's not wanting to work <laughs> just frozen um let's see if i can just change this around again it's always the same with technology, isn't it? It sometimes works, sometimes doesn't. It was set up and it was working absolutely fine uh, just a little while ago. Oh, hang on. It might be working. It wants to work. Never mind. It's not wanting to work at all. Let's just put me back up and hopefully I'll come back to... Uh, to uh, see in a second but what i had actually got here um if it would actually work let's see if i put myself down there we go never mind let's put this up to full screen and we'll carry on um what i had actually got was actually some of our coins uh which we have in our museum collection and it's one very similar to this uh, and there's another little similar one with some little wheat sheaves and i've had a nice little camera set up so you can see a, a nice in-depth uh, picture of it hopefully we'll see if it uh, 
if it works in a little bit, but never mind. Um, these are actually the official coins of King Herod. King Herod the Great with his stamp on them. Now, the Romans, because of course Caesar couldn't keep hold of everything everywhere, they would actually appoint different people to sort of rule over little areas of the empire, and a very few, select few of them, they actually gave permission to stamp their own coins. Um, and the most area that had their own coin stamped was actually uh, here in um, Judea. King Herod had his own coin stamped, several of the other governors had their coin stamped, and so it was uh, quite an interesting little thing, but it provides us with great historical evidence of King Herod. It's fairly well established in the historical documents, these little bronze pruters, as they're called. Um, then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all of the male children who were in Bethlehem and on all of its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Famous story of King Herod sending and putting all of the children to death. And then it was fulfilled as what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Rachel? Ah, oh, Diane mentioned Rachel earlier, didn't she? Uh, Rachel, where's the connection to this and where's the connection to Herod? Well, Rachel was the wife of Jacob, or Israel as his name was known. She gave birth to two of the twelve tribes of Israel, and she was a brother-in-law to Esau, Jacob's brother, or from whom King Herod was descendant. Esau was Herod's ancestor. It's interesting how the Bible all ties everything together, isn't it? Fascinating little study. And when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, um, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose and took the young child and his mother and came to the land of Israel. When did Herod die? 4 BC. He commanded all male boys under the age of two, uh, from age two and under, to be murdered. So therefore, Jesus must have been around one uh, and a half to two at this point, which puts Jesus being born around six to five B.C. Um, why not naught? That would make the most sense, wouldn't it? Well, have a look at the history and where our calendar came from. In 525 A.D., you ended up with um, Dionysus. Uh, the Little, who was commissioned to make a standard calendar for the Western Church. Now, this is deep into the time of the Roman Catholic Church, and their calculations have been shown to be off by at least four years. It has connections with Easter, and John spoke earlier about Josephus, right? You had the Celtic Christianity, which was kind of separated from the Catholic, never really took on the Catholic ideas, and there was a big clash in Britain uh, between the Celtic Christians and between the Roman Catholic Christians, who actually ended up uh, the Roman Catholics triumphing and the date of Easter being changed. It is all connected to the astronomical bodies, it's all connected to the history, and this Catholic calendar has been shown to be off by four years. The same calendar which our modern calendar is actually based on. 
And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, this uh, we've got coins from uh, Augustus Caesar, by the way, but this was questioned a lot of time in archaeology. Was there actually any evidence of these registrars? Well, who was Caesar Augustus? He was the son of Julius Caesar. And after uh, uh, <laughs> quarreling and fighting over the throne, he ended up established in the Roman Empire um, and ordered a census to ensure correct taxes. The census took place every 14 years and it could take years to complete. He had power of all of Rome uh, despite appointed kings and prefects. And there was very little evidence, uh, plenty of evidence of the censuses, but very little evidence that you were required to go to your hometown until you end up with this document, uh, which is one of the only documents we have regarding these censuses. Um, it was actually, this is actually from the British Museum, right? And it records the request to travel back to your home town, your home birthplace. Uh, so yes, indeed, there's evidence now that this is what they did. This is what was required to do. So it fits up perfectly with what we actually see in scripture as well. Um, so there's a, a little bit of a, a, an interesting uh, look. I'm going to stop sharing for the time being and come back because we're sort of heading towards the end of our time here together. Uh, my camera is working. That's good. I'm just going to try one more time to see if I can get these coins to show because they're quite interesting coins. And I also have another little surprise which I wanted to show you. So just give me a second. Let me try one more time and see if the audio wants to actually, or the video rather, actually wants to work. Let's just give it a second. Hey, it will work. Wonderful. Here we go. Right. Move it back into place. So this is a live feed, by the way. Uh, thank you very much, Sam, for putting it up to full screen. So this is actually the one of King Herod the Great. So you can actually see just here, you've got the little grey, the little basket, and you've got these heads of corn which come out of it as well. And it's got the sort of uh, writing around the side. That's one side of it. Just... Uh, show you the other side quickly which is where it tells us who it actually belonged to but uh, also interesting this is the little surprise now i will just need to get my little torch on so we can actually see what's going on here have a nice little look at this one it's another little bronze coin and this is one that eluded us for a very long time in terms of the history and the archaeology of it because this is actually you can see the nice little sort of shepherd's uh, crook in the middle there um this is actually getting in the center the official coin of Pontius Pilate. Um, now, there was a lot of um, argument about Pontius Pilate and to whether he actually existed before they started finding these coins in the records, right? Not only do these exist, but you can find that it's actually one of four um, uh, sorry, one of three different governors uh, of Judea that were actually given permission to mint their own coins. Pontius Pilate was one. There's his coin there. Um, there was another one who I can't remember. And there was also Felix, who's mentioned in the book of Acts. So both of the Roman governors who were actually mentioned in the Bible had their coins minted after their name. And we have collect, uh, specimens of both of those um, here in the museum collection. There's one of the Pontius Pilate ones. Here's another one similar. You can just, the uh, it's a very, very dark coin, so it doesn't show up very well. You kind of got to get the angle right, but you can just kind of just about see the, uh, the little uh, sickle there as well. So wonderful little coins from the time of Jesus showing that the Bible can really indeed be trusted as an accurate uh, example uh, and record 
of history. I'm going to switch back to me now and we'll uh, go through some more questions before we finish up. But John, any sort of comments on what we've uh, spoken about so far? Anything you'd like to add? Um, well, uh, yes, you mentioned the census that Caesar really reinstituted because it first came up in the 6th century BC with King Service. This is before Rome was a republic. And uh, he wanted to know how many people he had so he could get taxes. And that's what censuses are all about. And that this has been continuous on, not just from King Service, but through the Caesars and all down to governments today. So in Australia, we have one day and we all have to be in our own homes, just like Mary and Joseph had to be in their own home where they came from. And it's in the book and it becomes a very important part of the prophecies that are in scripture that they would have to be back in their own hometown. And uh, of course, the wise men not only look at the star that tells them the sign, they end up having to use an astronomical method in the end to figure out which house that Mary and Joseph would have been born in. So all good stuff. Again, a reminder, if you want a, a great book to read just for fun, uh, as well as for serious scripture and great for your kids, get our new Starboy available USA via postage, Australia and uh, in England direct. Great stuff. Great stuff. Oh, I've just had a quick look, Sam. The, the chat seems to have exploded in the last 20 minutes or so. Um, so I... I don't know how well you've been keeping an eye on that and uh, and whether you can bring some questions, but we've hit the two-hour mark. In fact, we've hit over the two-hour mark. This is a special, so we can kind of get away with that, but it is fairly late here in the UK, and I'm sure that uh, John and Diane are probably getting hungry for breakfast over in Australia. So let's uh, run through a few quick questions um, and see if we can uh, finish up a few of them before we close. By the way, guys, to give you a little bit of um, housekeeping or stuff for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be having a break next week. Next week is either Christmas Eve or um, Christmas Day, depending on where you are around the planet. Uh, so we will be avoiding that. Um and uh, we'll be doing, a, a, probably maybe doing a little sneak broadcast or something like that uh, in there somewhere, but we won't be doing a main creation conversations. We will also be missing the net week after that, because that is actually um, New Year's Eve or New Year's Day. And of course, we broadcast late into the night, so most people will probably be off having a party. So we're going to have a two-week break. Right, there may be a few little sneaky broadcasts in there somewhere or little live videos to so keep an eye out, continue to support us. But we will be back in the second week of January or the, the first week, depending on where you are on the planet, right? Um, and uh, we will be carrying on. We've got some great guests booked in. Uh, we're going to be doing some great topics as well. And we're probably going to start off with that rather controversial topic, when should a Christian disobey the government, part four. So check that out. But Sam, how are we doing with questions? I was going to say that this uh, when should a Christian disobey the government is starting to turn into, um, you know, sort of like a, a Marvel Cinematic Universe sort of saga. <laughs> um, of, uh, you know, lots of lots and lots of films, lots and lots of parts. Um, yeah, OK, yeah. so we've got, we've got uh, a sort of, well, not really a question, but sort of a question um, from my dad again. Uh, I read that Tarshish could refer to Cornwall in the UK, in brackets, silver mines. Well, of course, the British are famous for actually having the uh, zero line on the uh, meridian to tell us what time it is all around the planet. So I'm not surprised I think Tarshish refers to Cornwall as well. But Sorry, that, that's just in jest. Um, there is a thought in ancient history that Tarshish 
is anywhere from Spain across to Cornwall. And because of the Romans' use of Spain and, to, and, uh, and uh, Cornwall for mines, you can see a little bit of significance to it. But the most historians that I've come across actually refer to Tarshish as related to them, the, not only the prince, but the, the guy who's listed as a magi uh, in the book of Daniel. And uh, so since it's a magi who comes and someone called Tarshish, it may simply be that like we have where I am, we have the Brisbane River. The Brisbane River is named after the town of Brisbane. The town of Brisbane is named after Lord Brisbane and Lord Brisbane is actually an Englishman. Now, where he's come from before that, I don't know, but there's also a Brisbane in California. So you've got to watch the replication of names and try and find the first one. Um, likewise, too, if you look at some of the theories that Tarshish, a land of gold, is in the Philippines, there's the interesting but not confirmative evidence because of the presence of gold and, uh, and you know, the concept of Tarshish and Ophir. Ophir is the word in the Philippines. But my dad was a gold miner, and I've been to some of the gold mines in Ophir in Australia. Right? It's named after the Ophir in the Bible. And the name Ophir in the Bible, where do you put it? No, it wasn't in the Philippines first. That, like the Ophir in Australia, has come second. But here's an interesting personal bit of history. When I became a Christian and got to know some of the geologists guy, our head geologist had actually become a Christian in the following way. After World War II, he was invited because he was a top man in his field to actually come to Israel. Israel had been set up, right? A new country. And he needed to follow the, the, the clues in history from King David's concepts, from the bits in the Bible, uh, to try and refine King David's mines. Where was the copper coming from? Where was the gold coming that's mentioned in the Bible? And one thing that he noticed was that if he ever followed any instructions in the Bible, literally the mine was there, the place was there, the well was there, the spring was there. In fact, it was so overwhelming he became a Christian because if it's accurate in reference to gold and place names, and uh, then it's accurate in terms of Jesus and everything else. So that's how he became a Christian. It was fascinating to hear a geologist say it's the geology of the Bible that led me to Christ. But as I was talking to him, his conclusion was the first lot of the gold of Ophir was on the southern part of the Arabian Peninsula. And it, it, it's a word itself, which even in Hebrew means the place of gold. And it's even uh, sort of like the gold in, in Genesis chapter one is mentioned as not only gold, but being good gold. And that's ex almost exclusively in its origin, a Jewish term. Don't be surprised the Jews dominate the gold market and they don't sell cheaper gold. They sell good gold, right? Uh, as described in Genesis chapter one and two. Great stuff. Great stuff. Let's have another question. Right. Okay. Uh, this is, uh, again, not another question, but sort of something to comment on. Uh, I think this is probably something maybe for possibly Diane to comment on. Um, the blood sample Ron Wyatt collected from the mercy seat was tested to have 24 chromosomes. Uh, perhaps since I know knew Ron before he died, I'd probably be a bit better. I went to personally visit Ron a few times and have a look at his evidence. I saw some of the chariot wheel stuff and all of that. But when you look at the video Ron has put out concerning that collection of blood, you would have to say, if you were in a court of law trying to prove this really was blood collected at that spot, you'd be down to one point out of 10. You can't establish your case. So 
as interesting and as exciting as Ron Wyatt's stuff comes across to be, it ends up being um, basically circumstantial at the very best, right? So it's probably not worth worrying even about the 24 chromosomes if you can't prove that it actually comes from underneath the mercy seat, it's dripped through the ground, etc. So uh, it's probably not worth going there, Diane. So yeah, yeah. I want to just comment very quickly on 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 Ron Watt. Um, I think that I I do not think that he was a fraud in the sense that he was intentionally deceiving people. I think that he genuinely believed everything that he found was real and was good evidence. Uh, it's just lacking the skills of an archaeologist or a scientist or really understanding the theory behind that. A lot of the stuff that he did ended up being, like John says, sort of uh, you know circumstantial at best. Um, there's there was a, there's a lot of issues with a lot of his stuff in terms of actually using it for evidence. He has some very interesting ideas for sure, um, but there's there are a lot of uh, a lot of issues with 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 quite a bit of his research which is why you'll find that not a lot of his stuff is used um in amongst the the sort of the creation or the archaeological world but that's not to say that i think that he was deliberately deceiving people um i just think that he was uh, he, he 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 wanted to find this stuff and he lacked the skills to properly test it put it that way i, I had one more there. comment there joseph and i had one more comment if that's all right yeah. i've had ron on my my field trips and his wife right I've been to his house of the people who support or criticize Ron. I would have to know him better than most, right? And I agree with you. I do not think he set out to deceive people. I do think he was not qualified to comment in many, many areas on what he said. And the last thing you have to know about Ron, he was a diehard follower of uh, Mary White. You know, so you have to take all of those things into consideration, uh, the cultic side of it, the, the, um, all of those things uh give him a pat on the back though he set out and he paid his own bills he didn't use it to raise money or anything like that so criticize for sure compliment where it's needed absolutely yeah great stuff all right let's uh, try and fit in one or two more before we before we finish up yeah sure uh we have a question from opindra uh this sort of links nicely into starboy which is available on our creation research store grab it now to get it before christmas uh and uh, all that jazz uh so this is from opindra hello do the stars and constellations tell the story of the bible example does leah refer to jesus scorpion refer to satan etc well, I'll start, and Joseph, you can finish if you like. And if you've got anything you want to add, Diane, throw it in the middle. Here in Australia, there are Aboriginal people, right? We know they've come from India, and they brought stories about stars with them. One of the first star stories that got me intrigued was that when you look all around the globe, and I'm one of the people who's travelled all around the globe, the Greeks have an ancient story of the Seven Sisters. Now, the Seven Sisters refers to a constellation. Now, the Bible says everybody in the planet comes from Noah via the Tower of Babel before they split up into the separate racial groups, Greeks, Aborigines, etc. As a result, you'd expect them to have a common background. Now, here in Australia, you'll find an Aboriginal story of the seven sisters. The possibility of coming up with exactly the same sort of story is zero, right? So they have constellation stories. That's just purely interesting. But here's the one I find most interesting. We have the Southern Cross. Now, we call it a cross because crosses come into our culture largely through Christianity, uh, courtesy of the ancient Roman cruel methods of crucifixion. But in the Aboriginal story, 
no concept of a cross. They call it the emu's footprint, you know. You, you see a, a big emu with three claws and one, one sort of poking bit out the back. And it's, it's the footprint of the good emu. And then when you look at the footprint of the good emu and you want to know where it is in the sky, you look at the two pointers. Now, the Aboriginal story goes this way. The footprint of the good emu, the two, the two pointer stars are the tip of the spear belonging to the bad man. And the bad man is chasing the good emu. And the good emu can't get away. The bad man throws the spear and it ends up in the emu and out of his side comes a river of water. You and I call it the Milky Way, right? But to them, it's a stream, a river. And the old man finished the story. And we put many of these into our, um, our DVD, what's DVDs, now M MP4s and then uh, streaming available now on the origin of races, real roots, where you actually can hear these stories for yourself. The river of water flows across the sky and the Aboriginal story finishes this way. If we could get back on that river and go through the emu's footprint, what you and I call the cross, go through the cross on the other side, we could live forever. The cross, somebody dead, a river of water out of his side, not blood, water, right? Now, that, that connection is so gospel-centred, don't be surprised the Christian missionaries cottoned onto it and said, that's the gospel. Here's what you're missing. Jesus is the way. He's the water of life. He can get you through that, that uh, problem and you can live on the other side forever. So there is some truth to all of this because the stars were ordained. It means they were put in place for signs, for times and for seasons. And that's why Jesus said, you want to know when I'm coming back? You want to know when the end will be? And the stars will begin to fall. Joseph, you got any comments? Diane, yeah, well, any comments? The stars and the constellations, they definitely have a connection to the gospel. We know this because of the star of the nativity, right? And we know because God, when he created the stars, Jesus, who created the stars, actually said they will be for times and signs and for seasons. And there was the connection and the prophecy as well to the nativity, right? So there is some connection there. Uh, as to whether you can go as far to say that God spelled out the gospel in the constellations, you know, the story and the stars, well, there's interesting connections, uh, and John has talked about that. But something that's always fascinated me is the link between uh, history, culture, religious belief systems, I suppose you could call it, and astronomy. Right, all back throughout history, even as far back as I mean, you saw earlier the connection between Nimrod, right, and the fool and the hunter, and now what we call Orion, which is the Greek version of it. So, you've got all these interesting little connections all the way back, and there's definitely a connection with people worshipping the stars. And today, this is all tied up in astrology, which is that you can tell your future by the stars, but then the Babylonians were doing that as well. It was kind of a mishmash of you know, real observational study and mixed up with all of this spiritualistic pagan stuff so there's definitely a connection between stars and spirituality which i think goes straight back into scripture the fact that god said look these stars will be for times and for signs and for seasons and just like anything that god creates for good we can use for destruction right and we can corrupt that so i think there's definitely a connection there god created the stars for signs for seasons to let us know physically what season it was but also for signs uh, in the star and obviously the greatest sign was the um the birth of christ 
But we as corrupt human beings can actually take those stars which were designed for something good, for signs and for promises and for prophecies, and end up corrupting them into the astrological stuff uh, that we have today and everything from the past. So I think there's definitely a connection there. You're on the right track. Just be careful to not go beyond what Scripture says um, that you can go beyond. So, I'd be Sam, mindful. would you remind people, because all of this... Um, uh, funding thing is is new brand new to me i don't have a clue about it but tell people about it i mean it's good news we've been granted it but how can they actually support what joseph is doing i'm doing i'm doing you're doing yeah so uh what we can do is we've got multiple ways of get, um, giving a donation across to ourselves um if you go on to creationresearch.net there is a donate button you can donate there uh, you go onto the Creation Research UK website, there's a donate button there. Uh, and as well on YouTube, you can do super chats and super stickers or whatever they're called, stickers, I can't remember. Are they called super stickers? I think they're called super stickers or something like that. Yeah. They're super, they're, they're, they're super something. Um, they're, su they're super for us. Um, uh, they are yeah. super for us. Um, but yeah, you can use a sticker, you can uh, send it, something fun, something quirky, and the, the money comes through to us, uh, and you can send a super chat as well. Um, that's a great way of donating as you're watching live, and uh, we'll put your message up on the screen as a thank you. Um, but yeah, that's a, again, we've got another great way of getting uh, some support over to us, but by all means, there's no obligation to donate. The, the content we put out on YouTube and stuff like that is free and we want you to enjoy it and to be blessed by it. Um, but if you so wish to be inclined or if you pray about it and you wish to donate through that way, you please feel free. Um, and we, you, we could do with some extra funds going into the new year. For sure. For sure. COVID has hit us hard and we love to do this and we love to keep going and uh, providing ministry. But as John says, you know, it all does cost. But um, anyway, let's have one last question before we close up. I think that's fair. Or do yeah. we have a, well, a quick question and then a long Yeah, we do. Like We've got uh, one quick question. I'll add a question onto the top of this because this is a very, very quick question. Um, Shelley yeah. says, what are the coins made out of? But I will add another question on top. How common are those coins? Okay, well there you can see. Just hold it up to the uh, to the screen there. Get it in front of my face so it comes into focus. Oh, it nearly came into focus there. It may just about. It doesn't want to do it. Let's do it. There. No, never mind. Um, so you can just about see the coin here. It's more or less roughly in focus if we get it in the right place. But it's try actually your, try, try putting your hand behind it. There yeah, that's better. Yes, almost. This is fun, isn't it, everybody? Yeah. <laughs> it's sort of in focus. No, <laughs> oh, never mind. Anyway, um, it's made out of bronze. <clears throat> That's the simple answer. It's made out of bronze. How common are they? They're not very common. Uh, certainly not compared to the other Roman coins, because A, they only were really minted and only really used in and around Jude Judea. So that shrinks in your turn you know and, you know the 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 main roman provincial or the main roman imperial rather sorry uh coins were used everywhere so you could have a coin that was minted in rome and you can find it here in the uk or whatever right everything from right down to the Cersti up to the denarius and beyond right and some wonderful silver ones and gold ones and stuff these ones tended to be minted and only used uh, around that area 
of where they were sort of the, the province, province basically. So they're rare in terms of a empire-wide. They're also quite rare as well. They are uh, well-preserved because they're bronze, and bronze doesn't tend to decay that much, although you can sometimes find them kind of corroded together, but they're usually fairly easy to uh, clean up. They don't rust away like iron coins do. So um, they're, they're, they're more common than you might think of something. It's not exceptionally rare, but they are still fairly rare compared to most of the coins. If you want to get hold of them, you either have to get them from a, um, a an old collection, basically, of somebody who collected them in the 1800s or Victorian times or whatever um, and ended up doing it. But obviously the pilot ones weren't really known about then, so they were exceptionally rare. Most of the pilot ones come out of... Um, Israel today or the surrounding areas and there's lots and lots of laws about exporting antiquities and you get a lot of these things snuck in on the black market and of course if they're on the black market they're illegal so you have to return them if you get found out or caught out and uh, not only do we not agree with the black market if these were black market ones I wouldn't be waving them around to you now so you can't kind of guess that these are all legitimate Israel has a antiquities scheme. Everything has to be passed through the Israel Antiquities Authority. They will produce an export license, uh, which uh, on a very select few, and it has to go down the official route. So we actually get these from the archaeological center in Israel, um, or some of these anyway, and some of our artifacts will come from there, and they come with the official export license and a number and a certificate and everything. So they're all above board. They're all legitimate. And also another uh, few coins I will just show you. I'll see if I can hold up a few here. And you can't really see. They're better off down in your hand. Um, but these are referred to. Let's just hold one or two of them up like that. See if you can see some of those. Little tiny, tiny coins. Little bronze coins again. These are what are referred to as the widow's mites uh, in the Gospel of Luke. I remember the story of the widow and all the Pharisees were going, oh, look how much money I've given to the temple. I've given so much. And the poor widow who only had two mites gave all that she had. And Jesus made the point of, well, actually, what she's given is 10 times the amount of you uh, because you gave it out of pride and she gave all that she had. Um, so there's another little interesting biblical connection for you there as well. All right. Mm -hmm. Um one final question, and then we will definitely finish. Sam, do we have one final question to quickly finish up? Uh, well, unfortunately, we don't. Um, oh, we are, we are all We're out of questions. However, I would like to put up Esther here, who has brought in uh, £10 in a super sticker. Oh. Thank you so much, Esther. Bless you, Esther. Thank you very yes, much. God we bless appreciate you. that. Very, very gracious of you. We'll have um, to make it up your way sometime soon, Esther, and do another field trip because I've seen pictures of your fossils and stuff that you've been finding. So, um, Lord willing, next year we'll be able to make our way up your way and uh, and do some more field trips and stuff as well. And who knows, maybe John will be with us at some point in the far distant future when you get out of Australia. Maybe, maybe I'll be a fossil by that maybe time. I'll be with you, yeah, true, 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 true. All right. uh, we've also had another one in from Faithful, Honest and True. Uh, thank you so much for the five Australian dollars. Uh, truth, so truth social starts in first three months, 2022. Go the Donald. Um, I have no idea what that is. I don't know if he's referring to Donald Duck or Donald Trump or whatever. But anyway. Thank you very much for the donation anyway. We really appreciate it. All right. 
let's finish up then. I hope you've enjoyed it. We've done a long one today, just about over an hour and a half. So uh, we've done a nice big long one. We will be having a break for two weeks. We may sneak in a little sneaky live stream here or there or a little live creation research live video. Who knows? So keep an eye out. But uh, for the time being, anyway, Creation Conversations is out. We will be back after the Christmas and New Year break. Uh, so that will make it. Let me just have a look at my calendar here. We will be back on the 7th. It'll be the 7th of January. So God bless everybody. Uh, Diane, John, any uh, any final comments for you before we go? Our breakfast is sounding really good. <laughs> well bed is sounding good for me so uh we'll catch you later and uh yeah we'll see you next year goodbye yeah. everybody thank you all so much <laughs> goodbye yeah. merry christmas happy new year merry christmas. happy new year, happy new year. Happy new year. Happy new year. Catch you later.